Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast. Look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always, my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? Frozen, apparently. <laughs> yes, Andrew has accepted a position as, as the uh, barony of Monaghan. Uh, we're concerned that traps have been set for him, um, but we rest assured that his safety is, is absolutely paramount. He is very, very important to us. But yes, so this week on the podcast, we are discussing a very relevant, very timely movie. Um, you know, look, it's been a very tough 2020 for everybody involved, but things are finally getting back to normal. You know, cinemas are reopening. Denny News Dune is coming to cinemas. It's going to break the 250. We're recording ahead of time. I can't see any way Denny News Dune wouldn't make the top 250 movies of all time. So we're recording this ahead of time. So uh, yeah, we're here to talk about Denny News Dune. So to help us do that, we have the wonderful Charlene Lydon from the Lighthouse Cinema. And Charlene, can you tell us when Denny News Dune is arriving in cinemas? Uh, with the year 10,000 and... <laughs> no, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Soon. Oh, okay. <laughs> Okay, we're going to take that from the top. Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast like the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always, possibly at some point, is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. But because Denny News uh, Dune is not actually opening in cinemas, we decided we'd take a break from the usual format and we'd discuss David Lynch's 1984 science fiction. Let's call it a cult classic, Dune. And join... <laughs> this is an audio medium, Joe. I'm going to need you to repeat that gesture in word form uh, okay. in a moment. I, I, uh, I held my hand <laughs> perpendicular to my face and then I waved it from side to side. I made a kind of... Uh, grimace as if to say really um but yes so we are going to talk about dune and joining us for that discussion we have the wonderful charlie Lydon from the lighthouse cinema and david lynch enthusiast and the fantastic joe griffin how are you guys Great. good thank yeah. you spice be with you <laughs> and also with you <laughs> and with your spirit but yes, so very quickly, before we jump into talking about Lynch's Dune, in particular the 1984 version, let's talk a little bit about Frank Herbert's 1965 Doorstopper novel. 400 pages in its original hardback edition, 900 pages in its first paperback edition, generally regarded as one of the classics of science fiction literature. Have we all read David Lynch's Dune? Yeah, I finished it like 48 hours ago, I'd say. <laughs> um, and and Charlene? I I have read it, uh, not for a while, and I don't remember very much about it. <laughs> no, I do, but like I just find that the universe is so vast when you're immersed in it for any bit of time at all, you feel like you're completely in it. But then like I just forget all the weird words and stuff after like being away from it for any length of time. So I probably read it about five years ago because we did it for Cinema Book Club. Ah, yeah. Um, and Joe, jo, you have a more kind of fresh memory. Is it still with you? Do you remember any of the weirding words? Yeah, I, it, I do remember a good bit about it actually. Uh, although I do, I remember the experience of reading it on my Kindle, and I read it, and I went like, "The end," and I was like, "Okay." And there was still like ten percent of the book left, and I was like, "Huh." And then I turned the page, and it was like. And after like more sci-fi classics are available at whatever.com. And then I turned the page and then there was this like 80 page appendix about like the, <laughs> the ecology of Dune and the politics of Dune and all that. And I was like, 
been there doing that uh, but no i thought it was i thought it was an awesome book actually um like it every every page or two there was some kind of profound little gem about you know if you don't change then you go to sleep and there's a stasis and then every chapter opens with this like little uh, piece from space bible about what had happened <laughs> and it, there there were loads of genuinely thought-provoking little nuggets in it about religion and about extremism and about ecology and so like there's eating and drinking in it i did genuinely enjoy it but i did think that because of everything that's going on in the world i've been quite distracted my attention span has disimproved this year so i'm not sure i would have made it across the finish line this year had i not had the deadline of this podcast so i appreciate the podcast for giving me the deadline <laughs> I like that. If we accomplish nothing else, we've done that. And I think actually Andrew may be back. We may have picked up signal from Monaghan. How are you, Andrew? Hello. Hello, Dublin. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we can, from deepest, darkest Monaghan, we can pick yeah. it up here. So, Ir yes. Irlande, douze point. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. So, again, like this is kind of. I'm very funny in my country. <laughs> <laughs> But my yes, my so... humor might not translate. <laughs> um, but yeah, because I think this is one of the interesting things about kind of Herbert Stoon is that it is so incredibly vast and so incredibly deep and so incredibly mired in kind of phrases and words. And again, it's often compared to something like Star Wars. And like, it's interesting that last week we discussed the last Star Wars film in the 250, Return of the Jedi, which was almost directed by David Lynch. He was one of the directors who was actually drawn in. There's a really great, and we'll include the video in the show notes, of Lynch politely telling Lucas where he could go stuff his script for Return of the Jedi. And instead jumping on to do this. And it's kind of interesting because in many ways, Dune almost feels like the anti-Star Wars. Because Star Wars is designed to be accessible and broad. And I think that, you know, the observation that, like, the language of Star Wars includes nonsense like, you know, the Force or the Jedi or the Dark Side or, like, X-Wings, lasers, lightsabers, all that sort of stuff. But they're all recognizable words that you put in sentences and you can get from context. What? When reading Dune. <laughs> like, you know what a lightsaber is. It's a saber made of light. It's a light sword. The Force is, like, some sort of, I right. don't know. Force, oh right. yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't disagree with the 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 force is like suitably generic, but like nobody knows what a Jedi is if if you do, if you don't kind of are like a a, a Sith Lord or um, yeah, yeah, but anyway, the Sith Lord sorry. are just the dark side of the force, and that's the bad side because right. dark is bad, right? Again, well, like, yeah, yeah, they're, of... they're, they're like yeah, no, no, sorry, sorry, I I, I definitely I definitely take your point. <laughs> Certainly more. <laughs> More, more comprehensible, but it, it's, yeah, it, it's in fairness. I wasn't. It wasn't until I was about five films deep into Star Wars that I knew that Jedi's weren't allowed get together, like they weren't allowed to hook up. Like I did not know that. I, I didn't know that until now. <laughs> yeah, it did. It didn't come up until four films in, Joe. Like I feel like you getting at film five is quite decent in, in that. Oh scale. yeah, yeah. But you know, that, like mitochondrians were always there. Yeah. M counts. But I didn't yeah. know that. They, it's just like in not to get too deep into Star Wars, but yeah, it wasn't until about four or five films deep that Lucas was like, you know what? This is actually the Thornbirds. 
and it's actually about people who fall in love and are not allowed to get together. Deal with it. But yeah, like and, and like contrast that with Dune, where you're thrown in and it's immediate. Like you have the Landstrad, you have the kind of the Sardukar, you have the Moadib and the Madi and the Fremen and oh, you know, that's like the the and weirding one more way. thing. I forgot to mention <laughs> <laughs> the, the opening narration. Um, Andrew, actually, have you have you read have you read the Frank Herbert Dune? Um, no, no, Herbert. I've avoided reading it so that I could be the the kind of um, uh, fresh voice um, kind of audience surrogate for for this yeah. very podcast. That's very kind of you. Oh, I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about that in a moment, but just very quickly in terms of like the production of Dune 1984, because it's obviously Dune had a very long life and it was published. People were like, okay, we can turn this into a movie. There were a number, a number of attempts to do it before we got to the 1984 version that was eventually released. I think it was John Sayles, the man behind Planet of the Apes, tried to do it first. That did not work out. Then they hired um, Alejandro uh, Jodorowsky to make his version of Dune. And, you know, not to spoil recommendations, but there's a wonderful documentary about Jodorowsky's attempts to make a 12-hour epic of Dune that would have starred Mick Jagger um, and Salvador Dali as the Emperor of the Universe, making him the most expensive. And, and, like, the deal was that Salvador Dali wanted to be the most expensive actor in the history of Hollywood. So, like, Jodorowsky got back to him by saying, okay, you will be. We'll pay you by minute, but you'll only be on screen for two minutes, and the rest of the time we'll use a dummy in your place. And Salvador Dali was like, deal if I get to keep the dummy. It's amazing. Um, it's it's like, again, it's something that you should absolutely watch on your own time. It's it was, fantastic. It was, it was $100,000 per, per minute or minute. something, wasn't yeah. it? This is all that from was... the trailer. <laughs> um, and you're doing research as usual. But yeah, so apparently, like, and J- Jodorowsky's attitude, like, he well, was- Well, I'm not going like, to watch his... it. Like I've seen El Topo, I'm, like I'm, I'm personally, I'm glad that it was never made. Like, pe- pe- yeah. People like not to spoil kind of too much for this movie, but some people don't like it. Is it? It's weird. Unusual. <laughs> like, um, I wonder how it. Yeah, yeah this, it like Jodorowsky's Dune would have made David Lynch's Dune look like Steven Spielberg's Dune. Um, By comparison, yeah, yeah. Do. Yeah, and it's it's great because you hear like you all these interviews with the people who work with Jodorowsky, and they're like, "No, I never read the book. As far as I'm concerned, the story of Dune was what Jodorowsky told me the story of Dune was." And you're like, "Okay, that makes a lot of sense given the concept art that I'm seeing here." <laughs> so after Jodorowsky kind of like went to the studios and they refused to sign off on this 12 hour movie, um, they basically shopped around. They got Ridley Scott in because he just directed Alien. And Ridley Scott was going to do it, and he saw it as a step in the direction of Star Wars. Then his older brother died. And then they finally settled on Lynch. And there's a real sense in kind of in settling on Lynch that uh, the producer Dino Dino DeLantis, um, who we've talked about before with Joe, I think, in terms of like we talked about it on Terminator, we talked about it is like his role in 80s cinema. Um, He very much wanted to make a Star Wars movie. He had owned the rights to Flash Gordon back in the 70s when George Lucas had tried to convince him to let him make his version of Flash Gordon. De Laurentiis said no, so Lucas went off and made Star Wars and made all of the money. So De Laurentiis spent like most of the 80s desperately chasing that Star Wars dollar. Um, and De Laurentiis had a very interesting hiring po- hiring process. I think that like when he hired the director of um, Mike Hodges, who directed Flash Gordon, he said that apparently the sole interview that he had with De Laurentiis was, I like your face. You're hired. 
Um, and that was apparently the like casting process for the director of uh, making Flash Gordon. And I, I, it seems like De Laurentiis was attracted to Lynch in large part because Lynch had turned down Star Wars. So if you're going to make Star Wars, get the guy that said no to George Lucas and have him make your space opera. And it's great because Lynch has said um, after he was hired, he showed um, De Laurentiis and his daughter, I think Raffaella, um, his version of a razor head. And afterwards, they said, if we had seen that before we hired you, you never would have got this job. Um, (laughs) But yes, so David Lynch's Dune. And okay, um, I think, did we all see this before we read the book? I know Charlene and Joe have read the book, but did we all see this? I actually, I I saw it many years ago as a teenager. I actually saw it twice. um, But the last time I saw it was over, was probably about... 20 odd years ago 25 years ago at least so i felt like i was coming to the book fresh if that makes sense okay and sure and charlene you're very much a david lynch fan you came on and talked to us about twin beaks for example Mm -hmm. so did you approach it as a david lynch film first and foremost so the first time i saw dune was like when i was a teenager and i was going through my discovering david lynch (laughs) period um and while i acknowledged it's very different to other david lynch things i really i enjoyed it um and then the next time i came to dune was after i had read the book so like i read the book for cinema book club so we discussed the book and film um so that was the so those are kind of the two times i came to dune before this okay and like, again, I kind of Andrew as well, I think you haven't read the book so far. So question then for Charlene and Andrew, probably particularly for Andrew as somebody who's never read the book. Does David Lynch's Dune make any sense to you whatsoever? Like, is it easy to follow? Can you understand the particulars of what's going on? Does it make sense from a scene to scene basis? Probably Andrew. Yeah, I, I, I think I think it does. I mean, but I'm I'm not sure. Like I I've actually seen this a few times. So normally, like often when recording these, I might have seen a movie once. Did um, I don't know. Like twenty talk- minutes before we started recording. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or or with with um with Twin Peaks, I think I was still watching it. I think I started watching it like one and a half speed at some point. Um, but, um, Just adds to the experience. Movie, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I remember riding on like a train with was... you, desperately watching Twin Peaks, and kind of like when inappropriate stuff to watch in public would come up, kind of hiding the iPad. <laughs> yeah, everyone was saying kind of when we finally got to it, like, oh, that final episode was so, it's so like slow and atmospheric. I was like, yeah. <laughs> 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 Really could have sped things up there, David. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was the Andrew cut. No, but um, this movie I've seen quite a few times. So um, because I, I I lived with people, I think listening back, I think I describe it, um, and it sounds as in as if it was some sort of like smoke den. The, the the way I described it when I was living above a bookshop. It just sounded like we were getting stoned all at the time. I don't think any of us ever actually were into that, but I, I I think my previous description maybe sounded a lot like that. But we certainly did watch a lot of like silly movies, which again would have you kind of think uh, <laughs> particular thing. But um we we would watch this. In fact we 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 took a lot from this movie, we used to um, hold each other by the shoulder and then use our 
her fist on, on, on the other person's shoulder. It's like a kind of a gesture from the movie that, that, that never <laughs> happens in real life. Um, so we, 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 we would often kind of address each other like that. Um, so yeah, the, the, the movie did make sense, but maybe it didn't make sense at first. I don't know. It did, like it, it's not it's it's not it's not terribly complicated because there's a lot of stuff you don't really need to understand yeah. or won't understand. Or there is the, the and and the thing that I discovered as well, kind of from talking to people who read books, is is that like this isn't weird because it's drawing from this really kind of Byzantine kind of um, political novel. Kind of that um, with this whole world, um, well, that's part of the reason why it's weird. But a lot of the weirdest things are coming from Lynch himself, and <laughs> <laughs> have nothing to do with the book, which I guess is no surprise. Um, but it did it did make sense. In, in fact, it made more sense than a lot of Lynch movies, um, I guess. Um, and yeah, yeah, it did and yeah, and and the the, the themes. Are fairly kind of um, I think universal in a sense. Or? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think a Jodorowsky one uh, movie would have been kind of all all, all over the place. Um, I'm 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 not I'm not, I'm not a, a, a fan kind of the um, but um, yeah, the, it it did make sense to me. I think yeah. So it, how, what about Charlene? I think sort of like what you said, enough made sense that I was like totally fine to follow it. But like, I, I don't, every time I've revisited it and when I read the book, I was like, oh, okay, so this is why, like kind of the, the broader sort of structures and ecosystems made far more sense. So it's like, it's a rich textbook. I mean, I think there's, te- there's different personality types. Like some people kind of like, if you don't understand something, you find it hard to proceed with it. I'm really good at just like being like, okay, I don't understand that, but I'll probably understand it later. <laughs> so I just keep going. Uh, so there's probably lots of stuff I didn't quite like get, but I'm, I was fine with it. And then like plot wise, it's all fairly like, okay, so they're going to this planet and whatever. And, you know, it's all fairly standard, like royals <laughs> trying to get power stuff. So, uh, yeah, so I'd say for the most part, I was fine with it, but um, there was obviously like a lot of, bits that I was I just didn't didn't get but I was fine with that like the fact that Chani's name is not Johnny that kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> for all that for all that Chani is vitally important to the unfolding of the movie's plot to be absolutely clear poor 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 Sean Young poor Sean um, Young has- <clears throat> Your job is to stand there and stare at the camera do I get to talk no 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 that's Virginia Madison you just yeah. stare at the camera um yeah, it's it's an interesting one because this is arguably like Lynch's big blockbuster. This is Lynch doing something that we kind of take for granted today, which is a small, low-key indie filmmaker who's made a well-regarded film. This is coming back off, off the back of The Elephant Man, which picked up a whole host of Oscar nominations and generally regarded as one of the best films of its year and arguably one of the best films in Lynch's filmography. It's the only film of Lynch's that's on the 250, actually. Um, and so, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Damn you, 250. <laughs> 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 I feel like every it time is. I'm on this podcast, you tell me something that shakes me to my core <laughs> at the 250. Where's Mulholland Drive? It's not on 250. No. Oh my god! No, nor is nor is Blue Velvet, the film that he made directly after this. Um, Lads, as well. oh. <laughs> I think you need to give up this 250 thing. 
<laughs> yeah, don't worry. Next season's going to be our season of Lynch, and we're just going to. That's wild. I mean, many have tried. <laughs> <laughs> they tried and failed, Andrew. They tried and died. <laughs> um, but yes, so this is like, but I kind of adore that, like, this is Lynch doing his version of, say, Christopher Nolan making Batman Begins, for example, or like Ryan Coogler making Black Panther. And like, this is what you get. Yeah, I actually, I totally thought of that when I was watching it about um, when maverick filmmakers are given like big budget films uh the results are often amazing like i was thinking of david o russell making three kings or like paul verhoven pretty much all through the 90s um or coppola's dracula and what happens when it works is you get the kind of conventional blockbuster story but then you also get that director's like in the case of russell uh, you get his depth of research and the amazing script and a bit of craftsmanship and personality and then a bit of weirdness. So it often gels into something really special. And actually, a lot of my favorite films are exactly those kinds of films. The Matrix might be one of those as well. Yeah. The Wachowskis had only made Bound before that and yeah. written Assassins. Uh, Assassins is kind of a banger, in my opinion. And uh, yeah, so... It should, I can see why the studio were like, yeah, if we get this hugely popular sci-fi story, arguably the most successful sci-fi book ever written, um, and it's huge influence on Star Wars, which like is buying ranches for people in California. And yeah, then we get this hot young director, like the elements individually are there, but I thought that it was like oil and water. They didn't really connect so instead of getting a conventional blockbuster with sprinklings of lynchian weirdness you got like these really great actors standing in dark rooms just like reading the book and then you'd have like a super weird scene like of a worm flying through space and then it's back to like jürgen prochno reading like a page off the book direct to camera and yeah they never quite they didn't gel I think like I imagine De Laurentiis had hoped oh actually I just remember another one is obviously uh, Jonathan Demme in Silence of the Lambs which was a De Laurentiis yeah, um, as well and that, the reason that it was a De Laurentiis joint is because he allowed them to use the character of Hannibal Lecter which he owned the rights to after Manhunter uh, which was quite quite generous because he didn't he figured he wasn't going to make any money out of not letting them use it so he figured he might as well sure why not what's the problem there um, it is worth noting actually just before we move off this before we ask three questions in terms of Dune it's the rare movie that Lynch has actually disowned. Um, Lynch doesn't consider it to be one of his favorite movies or one of the good movies that he's he made. Can't, um, he can't disown us. He, he's in it. <laughs> we have proof, David Lynch. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's there. not easy to deny it when, when you <laughs> yeah. put yourself in the movie. Well, people yeah. disown and their so- kids all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually at a, at a talk from him and he described it as his redheaded stepchild even like I love all of my films even Dune although it's definitely the redheaded stepchild in the back um, it's definitely yeah, an, no, like... an anti-Irish uh, <laughs> <laughs> statement there um, <laughs> we'll talk about the eyebrows in a moment Andrew I promise but it like again, and Lynch has been very, very kind of like he's certain about this because one of the things that happened was when Lynch took the project, he wrote, he read the book, and I kind of love Lynch's summary of reading the book. He describes reading the first sixty pages as like treacle, 
And after that, he kind of got it. And so he wrote a 120-page script, keeping in mind that for Lynch, uh, the script for 90-minute-long Eraserhead was 20 pages long. So you can figure out how long a 120-page Lynch script would be to film. He agreed with De Laurentiis that he would have three hours in which to tell the story. Um, in post-production, De Laurentiis said, no way in hell, we need it down to two hours because we need to get the screenings on. So he had to cut down three hours of footage into two hours, which perhaps explains why some of the movie is uh, disjointed, to use a polite euphemism for certain aspects of it. Like, plot elements appear and disappear almost at random. We'll probably talk about some of those in the spoiler zone. Um, But Lynch basically has said that was the movie where he died twice. He died once because he sold out in the first place. Um, He basically said, I want to make a big budget movie with a major studio, and I want to make something that audiences will flock to and love, and I will betray my principles to do that. And the second time he sold out was he didn't get final cut. Um, and so he didn't get final cut and the movie bombed, which means that he, from Lynch's point of view, he lost absolutely everything. And it's actually incredible. And we should be clear here. He actually continued to get on very, very well with Dino De Laurentiis. And it's it's amazing because De Laurentiis actually funded um, Blue Velvet, the next movie that Lynch did. And so much of the press tour was David Lynch standing next to Dino De Laurentiis talking about how much he hated making Dune. Um, I think Bruce Bailey like was at the like 1986 World Film Festival and the two of them were being interviewed together and Lynch was just saying it's a horrible experience when things don't go well with Dune it was a titanic gigantic impossible thing trying to contract everything into a single time frame it began to be impossible but once you're committed you have to see it through and it's like wow I I bet Dino really appreciates that David Um, but yeah so and it has this reputation it was like refuse (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, uh... but you can't you can't you can't david <laughs> you can't. We have the tooth <laughs> um but yeah and again it, it's worth noting the reviews at the time were far from kind i have a couple of snippets here from like Dave, I, from uh, i am Ebert. shocked it got bad reviews at the time shocked i tell you <laughs> it got absolutely kind of brutal reviews um but uh, janet maslin at the new york times opened her review by observing several of the characters in dune are psychic which puts them in the unique position of being able to understand what the hell is going on. Um, And Roger Ebert said it took Dune about nine minutes to completely strip me of any anticipation. The movie is a real mess, incomprehensible, ugly, unstructured, pointless excursion into the murkier realms of one of the most confusing screenplays of all time. And Dune kind of like when it emerged, it was hated on two fronts. It was hated by Lynch fans who felt that this was a betrayal of Lynch's vision, that he had either sold out himself or been sold out in the post-production. And it was hated by Dune fans because they were like, this is not the book. This is a David Lynch movie. And so it ended up like being the worst of both worlds. But it has been gradually kind of reappreciated. It's become something of a cult classic in the years that followed. So I guess then this is a nice segue into asking how you guys feel about it. So Charlene. Do you think that David Lynch's Dune is one of the best 250 movies ever made? No. <laughs> and I, I have a feeling I'm going to be the one who is consistently defending this film because uh, I love it. But uh, no, it is not. <laughs> um, how, how do you think it ranks in terms of kind of Lynch's filmography, actually? Because there was some controversy on the Twin Peaks podcast when I think Donald Clark came in and ranked it worst. I think Andrew took some personal offense at that. So how would you rank it in Lynch's filmography? I think it's a bit of an oddity. Like, I don't think it, I think he would probably say the same, but like, I don't think it really fits into his filmography very well. It's just such an oddity. Um, 
it just doesn't feel like a, well no that's not true it doesn't not feel like a David Lynch film um, I just find it hard to rank his films because they're so good <laughs> um, yeah and I, then there's I just, I don't know it's just too it's, this film is too lovable I find it hard to rank it lowest in, in fairness Donald Clark didn't want to rank them <laughs> he was under duress it's kind of it's like well it's like everyone like most people we have on this podcast they're like well why is there a 250 <laughs> it's kind of why uh, even is there yeah it was like yeah they, it was prefaced by a um given given that kind of listicles are nonsense and um you know it's as as a stupid exercise to try and rank no, gonna, these movies. We're just we're going, going to, to do it an anyway. Hour. Yeah, we're going to spend an hour ranking Lynch's 10 films. Um, so, Joe, what about yourself? Um, do you think that David Lynch's Dune, having seen it twice, once as a teenager and once last night, that it belongs on a list? Thrice, of yeah. I films? saw it kind of as a child. Sorry, I, I, I thought, I, thought I'd said that. I saw it kind of as a child and then oh. properly as a teenager. Ah, okay. And then again as an ah, old okay. man this week. Uh, <laughs> The three stages. <laughs> what walks on two? Yeah, what walks on four legs as a child, two legs as an adult, and three legs. As oh, a, as you've a given it away. Fair point. Fair point. All right. So, Joe, um, would it would Dune be? You'd, do you think that Dune? You'd be the worst Sphinx. I would be like, the worst Sphinx. Damn it! Phooey, <laughs> yeah, even. So who Joe, are the weakest? So, Joe. Um, I am. <laughs> goodbye. Um, so yes, so Joe, do you think that David Lynch's Dune ranks as one of the 250 best movies ever made? Lol, no. <laughs> like, in fairness, uh, there's stuff to like in it. And I don't, I don't completely, like, dogpile onto it. Um, and I admire loads of the people involved. Loads of the people involved, in fact. Loads of the cast and the crew and everything um, have worked on loads of stuff I love. And it's a sincere effort, but I do not really think it's a good film. Uh, I think it's a curio. Uh, I think it's a, there's stuff to enjoy compartmentally in it. Uh, but I think as a sit down and watch all the way through without looking at your phone kind of movie, I don't think it succeeds. I feel bad about it because it is, I can see that it's a sincere effort. Overwrought, some might say. Uh, but not good in my opinion and I would also I know making lists is like people's top five least favorite thing to do but I would say it's easily David Lynch's worst film that I've seen um now that's also it's his only one like I've seen that's not really good so I was gonna say like I, I don't I don't think I'd put anything below it but then like they're, they're just all so good like uh, it Almost. <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> Almost. that you mentioned like looking looking at your phone actually because like I I don't think like I don't think this is a great film at all but I do think it's it's one of the rare like I would have difficulty looking at my phone during it if only because I feel like it would somehow make even less sense when I looked back up. Um, well, I was going to ask the question if anyone has ever watched this in a cinema. Ooh, I have not. I have to say, I have also like not. not to get too holistic about this, but um. In that way that David Lynch evokes an atmosphere in all of his best work, I feel like Dune has that in a way that is is much better amplified in the cinema. Um, it's kind of a quiet sci-fi epic in a lot of ways. Like there's lots of 
as we say, like someone just talking the book. But uh, but those moments are quite kind of like almost meditative in some ways. And I like that about the film. I like that it's kind of still quite a lot of the time. They use the score sparingly, like when it's big, it's big. But quite often there's large chunks that there isn't any score. And to watch it in a cinema, I just think it has a nice vibe overall that you might not appreciate as much when you're watching it on the small screen. So I'd recommend going to see it in a cinema if you ever get an opportunity. It, do, it does. I think it does give the the sort of um, overall atmosphere a, a nice kick. Yeah. Actually, That's fair. Like that, and you can't check your phone. <laughs> true. One of the things I really like about Do not to jump too far ahead, is the fact that it has that lynching quality of feeling like a dream. Like, I think, like, many of the best Lynch movies, you don't necessarily understand in an intellectual level. You kind of just feel like a dream. And, like, the thing that I really like about the 1984 version of Dune is that it really does feel, at times, like a weird waking dream. And it's things like the characters constantly monologuing over shots of their own heads. Even when it's just Sting <laughs> saying, I will kill Paul. I wish this was Paul. All I see is another Atreides I want to kill like Paul. In case you don't get what my character motivation is. But he, he does have this kind of... He says that bit out loud, doesn't he? He, do, like, he does when he's yeah. holding the calf. Yeah, when he's... Which we'll, we'll probably talk about in a, in a little yeah. bit. But it... But it, it my, ha- Virginia Madsen does voiceover for bits that her character wouldn't have known about or cared about. So there's a bit when, like, Sean Young and Kyle MacLachlan are making out and it's like kind of montage to show the passage of time. And then Virginia Madsen said something like, and their love grew deeper. And it's like, well, you weren't poxy there. And also, even if you were, would you really care? Like, uh, so the voiceover was excessive. Oh, it I is. Found. It is absolutely excessive. But I, I mean, I'm not even talking about like that sort of stuff where it's kind of like exposition building. Because you also get like via montage, you get like Paul's sister Alia matured at a frightening rate. And it's like, maybe you could show us rather than just tell us that. Because like everything <laughs> yeah. that happens with Alia. I imagine to, okay. to Joe's point, I, am, I, I think that character is narrating from a point after the story has kind of taken place. Like, cause yeah, it, she's it, like a historian. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, she's she's you still when when you're telling us an anecdote of something that happened, you tend to have been at the thing where the anecdote. I'm not a historian. Yeah, but I. Maudib finding not, his Mrs. Maudib is is history. <laughs> it's crucially no, important. Uh, no shade. No shade on. Johnny or whatever her name is. Um, I don't know if that was a key moment in the history of Arrakis. Um, But but who knows? I I have no idea about uh, where Arrakis went. (laughs) Afterwards, whatever happened to Arrakis. It's probably significant it being kind of a a, a marriage of of love. Because there there is... Rather than politics. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of... um, I suppose, sort of Republican sort of sentiment in this, because of of the idea of like the, the, these sort of arrangements being um, um, skewed, like and um, her um, uh, mother Jessica have, have, having or Lady Jessica a son because because later having a son, mother, yeah, yeah, or or um, of Paul kind of um, sort of just doing his own thing. And not um, um, 
kind of supplanting a lot of the kind of imperial or, or uh, kind of tribal um, contexts of, 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 of the earlier movie, I guess. But yeah. Uh, but Andrew, what about yourself? Would Dune be, do you think Dune ranks as one of the 250 best movies ever made? Um, no, I, I, I think I am in, in the same campus as, um, uh, Charlene though. I, 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 I definitely like this a lot, but I, but I, I like, I think the thing that bothered me about, about, um, it being kind of the worst Lynch movie is the the kind of implement implication that it's not good. (laughs) But but it can, it can, it, 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 like and and the reason I I don't like that is because whether it's good or not I like it. Um, so yeah. I, same yeah. here. Yeah, it shouldn't be about good versus bad. It should just be about love. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Like uh, it it makes me sad that it's a bad movie. I watched the uh, DVD extra this morning. Remember DVD extras, and it was. I felt bad for the people involved. It was like such a nightmare shoot. And on a production level, it was like four years. And then Lynch himself worked on it for two years. And Kyle McLaughlin shot it for seven months. And loads of that was in a Mexican desert where it was so hot that the cast were fainting wearing those kinky rubber suits they all made them wear. And yeah, then and then for to work so hard on it. And it seemed to be just, yeah, an, an utter slog to to make uh then for it to come out and then everyone to go this movie sucks <laughs> and like audience but it's found somebody. its audience it's, yeah it's found so people audience. yeah people kind of you know um i get like it's weird because a lot of the movies that i watched at that time kind of living above the the bookshop were um very uh bad movies that we really enjoyed so it becomes difficult and, and you wonder of... why people made assumptions about what was happening above the bookshop watching those movies exactly yeah yeah like watching the room or watching like uh david lynch's dune or kind of other other stuff like i, th- I think buckaroo bonsai got you um the other I'll, classic I'll, 1984 I'll... science fiction movie exactly with it with it the, 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 similarly with um uh I, I think we already mentioned. Um, uh, <laughs> I can't think of. The, Flash yeah, Gordon. no, the, the no, the director of um, um, of, of of RoboCop. What's wrong with me? Paul oh, Verhoeven. Paul Yeah, sorry, sorry. I beg your pardon. We were talking about Paul Verhoeven, but I, 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 I don't know if I'll wait till later for the obligatory RoboCop reference here. Um, but there, 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 there's one very obvious one. Um, it's 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 the it's 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 in RoboCop where where Clarence Boddick says like uh, Benny Gesserit witches leave. Um, <laughs> anyway, sorry, sorry. Uh... In the opening scene of Dune, I appreciate that, Andrew. Um, but but yeah, no, I yeah, think it's interesting that I you mentioned the kind of difficulties that they had during production because a lot of that stuff was very technical. There's a moment where Jorgen Prochnow's face was almost like fried by burning glass when a light bulb exploded over his head. 
uh, during the scene where he was tied to the the kind of thing being tortured by the Baron, not to get too spoilery. And apparently he literally dived out of the way at the last minute, otherwise he would have been killed or horrifically scarred. And there's other stories about like the New York Times going down while they were shooting and the studio having no electricity for like six hours of a day as well. And things like, again, and all these wonderful stories about like Kyle MacLachlan being a huge freaking nerd because he'd read Dune once a year, every year since he was 15. And like he would, his job on the set, on the set was to wander around and explain Dune to all the actors who couldn't make head nor tail of the script. Aww. Apparently Virginia Madison <laughs> would like, like talk about how he'd do little classes for them, which she really appreciated. What's really odd though, is whenever you interview actors who are associated with Dune, and I know that uh, Charlene <laughs> wants to talk about Brad Dorff, so we'll do that later. But like, <laughs> Brad Dorff like said like the shoot was a nightmare but working with David Lynch was just an absolutely amazing experience everybody loved him it was a really fun set to be on there was no hassle it was a delight to be there and things like Virginia Madison describing him as a sweetheart and everybody like the fact that so many of kind of Lynch's and we talked about like how weird this feels in Lynch's filmography but it's notable that this is a point where Lynch intersects with a number of actors who will become very important to him later on. Dean Stockwell pops up here for the first time in a David Lynch movie. Kyle McLaughlin pops up for the first time in a David Lynch movie. Um, Everett McGill pops up for the first time in a David Lynch movie Jack well. Nance. Well, Jack Nance not for the first time, but he's there. I want to talk about Jack yeah. Nance's character. Um, Look, in it looks like zone. Bill Murray. Yeah, I have, I, have several, <laughs> I have several questions about Jack Nance, the Harkonnen factotum, but we'll come back to that in a moment. Is there nothing Jack Nance can do? He, he looks like Brian Doyle Murphy, Murray in, in, in other things as well, I guess. He's like the, the long lost um, Murray brother. Uh, and, and for myself, no, this is not one of the 250 best movies ever made. I, again... Sorry, Joe, it feels like the deck is being slightly stacked against you. I have a huge <laughs> fondness for this movie. I don't think it's necessarily good in any objective sense, as much as that word has any value. But I do think it's fascinating, it's interesting, it's distinct and unique. And I think that's worth celebrating, particularly in an era where like, we treat intellectual property and we judge it by fidelity. Like, I think the fact that, like, and again, we'll probably talk about this when we get into the Slower Zone about the film's legacy and about the way in which it's treated by fans of Dune and the way in which its legacy has been reassessed after, say, the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries adaptation of Dune, which was like, and Joe was complaining about, like, you know, Duke Leto reading entire pages from the book. You have seen nothing. You have seen nothing, Joe. And even, say, the Denis Villeneuve Dune that's coming as well, where Dune fans are very obsessed that finally we're going to get one that does it right. Um... I like that there's an adaptation of Dune out there that is as weird and as odd and as like distinctly the work of an auteur as this is. Um, and again, it kind of like we talked last week about Return of the Jedi and how much Return of the Jedi felt like it was just Star Wars or space opera by numbers. I like that Dune is like odd. There is nothing in the universe like David Lynch's Dune. And I think that makes it kind of special of itself. And then second question then, Charlene, would Dune be on your own personal 250? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I would. I'd say. I'd say everything David Lynch ever made is in my personal two fifty. Yeah. <laughs> would see what Jack did is just shooting up. Yeah, what Jack did just <laughs> shooting up the list as we speak. Um, all right then. And Joe, what about yourself? I sense we know the answer to this, but just just to double check. Yeah. No. Sorry. Um. I do. I totally. I totally get that. Um. It's nice when auteurs are given forty million dollars in nineteen eighties money, which is probably like a hundred million dollars now. <laughs> Uh, to go off and do a super weird space opera. And I will take Dune over Transformers 2 or anything any day. I I totally get that. I just wish I liked it more. So 
uh, yeah, not in my 250. Comfortably not. <laughs> not in my 2,500. <laughs> not in my 250,000. <laughs> they might squeak in there. Like... <laughs> Just down the bottom. And Andrew, what about yourself? Would it be in your own personal 250? I think it, I think it would. Um, yeah, I, I think certainly personally it would. I think that this is a movie that's very um, memorable and visually striking. There's a lot of stuff that's quite, that's quite sort of dated about it, but I kind of forget that that's there when I look back on it and I think about the the um, uh, uh, parts of this where, like I watched this last night and this morning in a few parts, I had to kind of fast forward two bits and I can see the way like different parts of the movie are different colors and they sort of study like, like, like how, how green um, kind of Giddy Prime is and, and and stuff like that, and the sound and how blue Caladan is and how yeah. orange uh, Arrakis is. That's exactly and the 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 way the way the movie um, uh, sounds as well. I I I I think it's a great soundtrack. Um, uh, it it its only Oscar nomination was for sound mixing. It got one Oscar nomination that was for sound mixing, and I would say probably totally. deservedly so. Yeah, yeah, it sounds great. And um, as well, I I I I really um, enjoy the source of um, uh, weirdness and the uh, gr- grotesqueness of of us. Um, but it's like at it's at about the right level for me, you know. Where maybe if it were to go further, it would put me off. Like a razor head would probably be too far, sort of thing. Is it? Yeah. Well, like like. I'm, I'm pretty sure I've seen a Lynch movie that I maybe didn't enjoy, but um, I'm not. I'm 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 not certain. I I I um yeah. Anyway, the the I'd, I'd find I'd 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 find it difficult to put this on 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 the bottom whether whether it deserves to be or not. And it, it, so so much so in fact that yes, I would put it in my two fifty. Yeah, I kind of figured this hits kind of the sweet spot for you because again, like RoboCop reference here, this is very much in that style of kind of 80s science fiction, which is very loud. It, it has this kind of like big scale production and a lot of physical model work going on as well. A lot of puppetry, um, just this weirdness that kind of runs through it, which is you don't really get a lot in, say, earlier or later mainstream science fiction. It just seemed to arrive. And I'm not going to say, you know, at the time the Coke was a big deal. But, you know, coincidentally, at the time, Coke just happened to be a big deal. Um, but it, it does feel like this kind of like Dune kind of scratches that same itch as Robocop, just in terms of like feel and texture, in that it, it feels real and tangible and physical in a way that I think you've talked about Robocop being. Yeah, I mean, I mean, some, some of the stuff with kind of like the shield kind of armor and that sort of thing kind of in... in the blocky CGI. Yeah, in, 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 in terms of... Um, yeah, the effects doesn't doesn't kind of age particularly well. But like I say, I sort of forget that that's part of the movie. Like when I when I think about it, it's fresh now in my mind. But when I kind of when I look back, I I, I don't think of that. Yeah, that moment where Patrick Stewart turns into a Minecraft yeah. character—that's <laughs> exactly yeah. what um, I thought. Of. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's something about like um, when I'm watching it and something jars. It's usually like, oh, that's very eighties. Is what pops into my head <laughs> overwhelmingly oh jesus the 80s so we can blame the 80s for a lot of this just, 
Just a little bit. Um, and to be clear, again, we mentioned a lot in the Twin Peaks podcast. We should be clear here. Lynch is a very wholesome individual who has never taken any drugs. Um, so just to be clear, we are not implying anything along those lines. Um, and for myself, I don't know. Uh, probably just miss out on it. I love this movie so much, but I'm not sure it would make my own personal 250. Um, because again, there are movies that do what this does, but are like actively good as opposed to just kind of like interesting, fascinating, weird, and kind of, you know, enjoyable in chunks. There are movies that are more consistently enjoyable that do this. Legitimately good. Like Robocop, for example. (laughs) Oh! (laughs) As opposed to existing in that weird space of being so delightfully odd. By the way, Darren, you you said that, um, that Lynch doesn't take drugs. Coffee is a drug. Oh. Nicotine is a drug. Oh. Well, well done, Andrew. Yeah. You sell nice such it. <laughs> Re- reference to what? what what's the um, firewalk with fire me? Walk um, with me. Kiefer yeah. Sutherland character. Yeah, Kiefer Sutherland's character in that. Um, all right then, and He's definitely question. put there by by Lynch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but very very so final final round then. So Charlene. If listeners have not watched David Lynch's 1984 version of Dune, would you recommend that they pause the podcast, go out and watch it? And follow-up question, should they read the book before, after, or ever? I definitely think you should watch it. I definitely do. And, like, if you hate it, turn it off. (laughs) I mean, that's fine. No, I 110% think, yeah, stick it on. Everyone should see Dune. That's I think that. Um, Should you read a book before, during, or after? I don't know, it's kind of difficult to say because... In a way, I think if you read the book before, you'd probably be just kind of like annoyed by the film not delivering. Whereas if you go in fresh, unless you're a real stickler, you'd probably be like grand, let it wash over you. And then you have the wealth of this book to look forward to, to fill in the gaps. So actually, yeah, I'd probably say watch the film first. (laughs) And Joe, what about yourself? Um, This seems to be uh, an episode of caveats. Um, So... Yes, uh, yes. So yeah, yes. I would I would say if you're interested, if you're curious, if you want to see something legitimately different but not necessarily conventionally good, I would cautiously recommend it. Um conventionally good. I like that one. It's not conventionally <laughs> good. Legitimately good. Yeah. Or legitimately conventional good. quality is the worst quality. Um, so yeah like it, there's like a Venn diagram um, and it just exists outside the loops that are conventional and legitimate yeah it's um, it's a curio um, it's it's worth watching as a curio as opposed to a guaranteed good time I would say while we're on a Robocop kick Robocop is a guaranteed good time uh, but unlike it's Doom, not about Robocop I know I know, I know. <laughs> um, we did that episode um, you know like there there are there are big budget sci-fi movies again, like say Transformers Two, and I'd rather watch a video of my mother being mugged than that. I don't think Dune is like on that level. Uh, so yeah, it's a curio. Maybe check it out. I did try. My wife actually tried to watch it with me, and about ten minutes in, and she's a very intelligent woman, despite marrying me. But about ten minutes in, she said, "I have <laughs> no idea what's going on." <laughs> I was, like, was yeah. she not listening to Virginia Madsen? She told us everything that was going on. <laughs> I actually remember um, Leonard Moulton said uh, when he when he sat down to watch Dune, and he got lost during the uh, Virginia Madsen little introduction. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, "I knew I was in trouble." He's like, "The whole point of that bit was to tell you what was going on," and 
by the end of it, I was none the wiser. So I knew I was in trouble for the rest of the movie. Oh, so it's hilarious as well because it's like an exposition scene followed by another exposition scene immediately after. Like a lot like of exposition. Special reports on these four planets. The first ten <laughs> minutes is just like exposition, 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 and then about like at least half a dozen words or names you've never heard before in your life. And then, like, some of them, like Atreides and Arrakis, they're mentioned really close to each other and sound incredibly similar. And one is a planet, and one is the name of the family. And then it's like, okay, if you didn't get that touch, one be just moving on. And <laughs> the, the thing is, like, with, with David Lynch movies that you can't follow, like, um, A Lost Highway would be my favorite. And I, kinda, I watched that a couple of times. I think I think I know the gist of the story, the kind of circular narrative. And with Mulholland Drive, I I don't know what it's about. Um, but both those movies are very much sit back and enjoy the ride. So it's like with Mulholland Drive, especially pretty much every scene, when you're watching it again, pretty much every scene that starts, you're like, oh God, this scene is great. It's all going to kick off. And like there's even the last time I saw Mulholland Drive was five or 10 years ago. And I Still, I remember like the Naomi Watts audition scene and then the, the bit where the guy is made to meet that really diminutive cowboy who tells him everything. And like there's so many memorable scenes that just really pop. It doesn't really matter what it's about. Whereas with Dune, it's like Lynch is kind of wrestling with it. So he's forced to tell this like conventional hero's journey arc of a story. And so he doesn't have the, the freedom to play and just have, throw in a scene for the sake of it that might not advance the plot, but is just a joy to watch, like the bit in um, Lost Highway when the guy said that he was, when the guy approaches him and makes him call his house. Remember that? And he's like, I told you I was at home. Anyway, it's amazing. Um, there's, he doesn't get a chance to play in the, the sandbox of film that he usually does, ironically, considering all the sand is there. <laughs> counterpoint counterpoint i would suggest that most of the harkonnen scenes are arguably that in that yeah. like, they do obviously serve the purpose of delivering exposition but you can tell when you get a scene with the harkonnens that that's lynch just going yeah i'm gonna have a little bit of weirdness yeah. in there just for me i get that but the, the, the harkonnen scenes sorry andrew um yeah i, I meant to say no no the the main harkonnen guy when he starts floating around um all I thought of was like Thanksgiving Day balloons and <laughs> how not menacing and just goofy and daft it was. Um, now, there were some nice moments in that, um, like the bug being squished to make a little soft drink. Um, but yeah, like the, I, I get what you're saying, Darren, but even those scenes were didn't quite sing like the best of David Lynch does to me. And in terms of exposition, actually, it's worth noting that um, if you've watched the extended cut, the television cut, or some of the remastered versions, that 10 minutes of exposition becomes 20 minutes of exposition, where Virginia Madison's introduction, and by the way, I love the Virginia Madison exposits, fades away and then comes back and says, oh, I forgot to tell you, here's some more <laughs> That's exposition. That's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Then, uh, yeah, oh, sorry. Oops, thought, thought we were done, but there's another page to this thing. Sorry. Uh, but like, if you watch the extended cut, that's followed by a sequence of like Frank Herbert's voiceover giving you the entire history of Dune with like, again, concept art faded over like a PowerPoint presentation. 
And it's just, again, like the version that made it to screen is very heavy in exposition, but the extended cut is like 20 full minutes. And famously, again, this is one of those, like nobody had any idea how to market Dune. Apparently one of the early PR meetings suggests they bring Charlton Heston in and they film a trailer that would include movies like The Ten Commandments and The Robe and would then say, and now Dune. Wow. And Charlton Heston would Charlton Heston would do the voiceover on it, um, but apparently, like at screenings, they had printouts, glossaries, like little paper booklets for audiences to explain the terminology. That's a good idea. And, like, what? Yeah. <laughs> um, my personal favorite thing, and I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, this is not a visual medium, but my personal favorite thing in digging through like uh, Dune Arcaniana or Arcania was the David Lynch Dune coloring book that was produced to mark the release of the movie intended for children's audiences. It includes such delights as no-bake spice cookies, um, which are great. You can make them with or without melange. It's your choice. Including a picture (laughs) of Kyle MacLachlan enjoying a cookie. There are also like illustrations from the film. So you can, you can color in pictures of the Baron getting his lances boiled. You can color in pictures of, and again, they have little text summaries of the scene down the bottom. So Leto and Pitter lie dead. Having his lances is, boiled? Did he do that as well? Sorry, yeah, fair point. Yeah, um, give it a quick Google there, Charlene. I'll, I'll include oh, yeah. them in the show notes. Um, like there's, oh my gosh. That was quick. Some, yeah, it's actually something that exists. It's amazing. Like nobody had any idea how to sell this movie. And I kind of love that Dune is what happens when you try to package a David Lynch movie as a standard like four quadrants blockbuster. Incidentally, by the way, the famous shot of Sting in his underwear. I was disappointed. You can't color that in, unfortunately. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> yeah. Um, but a famous shot of kind of Sting in his underwear. Apparently Lynch and Sting had decided it would work much better if Sting were entirely nude during it. Uh, but they were told by the De Laurentiis that that would get them an R rating. And that was not cool at all. So Lynch was like, fine, we'll design some underwear for him very, very, very quickly. Which explains what you saw in the film. Um, those are apparently stitched together at the last possible minute. Um, and Andrew, what about yourself? Would you recommend that listeners pause the podcast and watch Dune? And do you think that you missed anything by not reading the book? Do you want to read the book? I do want to read the book. I, w- I would recommend people watch it. I'd say it's better than David Lynch's Joe's Ma getting mugged. Um, <laughs> it's, um, it's better than that. Um, and and yeah, it's, it, I, I would recommend people watch it. And you'll, you'll know fairly quick whether, <laughs> whether you ought not to have done it. I mean, I wish it was a thing where like if you're, if you're buying a book on Kindle, you can you can see the first kind of 15 pages for free sort of thing, rather than the trailer, which kind of bears no sort yeah. of, um, yeah. The trailer has <laughs> it, a real, we have no idea what we're selling kind of quality to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but, but I would, I would recommend people, people watch it. I, I do, I do think that people who like Lynch will, will, will enjoy this, but, um, but maybe you won't. I don't know. It's yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll recommend it whether you're going to enjoy it or not. There was a, <laughs> when I was a teenager, um, I used to hang out a lot with David O'Mahony, who you all know, and I still hang out with him. Well, I, back in normal times. So I'm still in touch with him, and I hope to hang out with him when we're allowed. <laughs> when when the plague is over, I hope to hang out with him again. Um, for people not familiar, Dave is program director in the IFI, who I've known since I was a teen. But when he used to try and get me to watch a movie, 
I remember he did it with An American Werewolf in London and Lawrence of Arabia, both of which are among my favorite films now. He'd say, look, here, we'll watch it for 10 minutes. And if you don't like it, we turn it off. And I was like, okay, yeah. And then inevitably, like 10 minutes in, he'd be like, okay, like, are we turning it off? And I'd be like, shh, shh, shh. we're watching American Werewolf in London. Come on, respect the movie. And uh, I, I do that with, I, if I want to watch something that my wife's a bit skeptical of and I'm really confident of the movie, like, say, Predator and Conan the Barbarian actually were two of them. I'd be like, 10-minute test. If you don't like it, we switch it off. No questions asked. And, yeah, like, Dune would fail that 10-minute test with flying colors. Um, so, yeah, if you're curious, maybe give it 10 minutes. Within that time, you will know whether it's for you. <laughs> But the first 10 minutes is just exposition. I feel like you need to give it at least 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, like the, the, those, those 10 and, minutes. And then of, you're committed. <laughs> then you're committed. But the film is at least 30% exposition. So it's not like it's like misrepresenting <laughs> what happens. Yeah. Um, Joe, quick question for you. As a like Dino De Laurentiis fan, would Dune be a better movie if they had cast Arnold Schwarzenegger instead of Colin Laughlin? <laughs> Instead of Colin McLaughlin, actually, because because you mentioned like I yeah. noticed the linked factor there, where you're like, okay, we'll try Conan for ten minutes, we'll try Predator for ten minutes. Mm. What is the linking factor here? That's my question. That's a good point. Um, Schwarzenegger would have been good as one of the Harkonnens, I think, um, or as like the Duke Leto, um, but he he might have been miscast as the fifteen year old Duke Prince. They probably. They, pro they probably would have let him come out of the the um, kind of uh, steam thing naked. Yeah. If it, it, like that, it feels, it feels like something where they would be like, no, we're absolutely not going to cut it. Not, not this thing does looks bad or anything coming out. He looks great. But I, I think... He ran five um, miles a day. Yeah. He ran five miles a day for weeks to get ready for that shot. Yeah. But I, but I think Schwarzenegger, Schwarzenegger coming out of it, you, you, you kind of like that has to stay in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> We're not cutting that. It's um, like in Terminator. You to, you totally see. Um, uh, we talked about this. We, you totally see Schwarzenegger's penis <laughs> in uh, in Terminator. Oh yeah, and um, apparently he was just so, wandering yeah. around naked uh, without, like he would turn down the robe uh, between takes. Like, <laughs> an assistant would come over with the robe to put on him, Schwarzenegger would be like, nope, he'd just light up a cigar and start smoking, um, as you do. Um, Not afraid of falling down. Yeah, I'd be afraid of smoking a cigar with, with um, rocking out like that. Um, <laughs> with, that, with that much baby oil on me it's all flammable right <laughs> about, yeah you could just like cover it in wax <laughs> sorry <laughs> <laughs> alright on that note and for myself uh, yeah pretty much second the recommendations here which is like you will have a good idea if this is for you fairly 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 quickly um, up until the moment where the guild navigator shows up and opens I think that's the point at which you go I'm in or I'm out um, so I would say try it up to that point in terms of reading the book I actually, um, I because I'm a huge honking nerd, I've been consuming as much Dune as I can, like the spice, um, up on like to kind of get me ready or in the mood for the Valnuve stuff. So before I, I watched the the David Lynch movie, then I read the book, then I read the comic adaptation of the book, then I watched the sci-fi miniseries of the book, then I watched the the Jodorowsky's Dune, then I came back and I watched the extended cut of the movie, then I watched the fan edit of the movie, then I watched the movie itself, and I have to say. 
when I when you've consumed that much Dune content, it actually flows a lot better and makes a lot more sense because you understand all of the references and all the stuff that's missing. Because like one of the things when you're watching the cut down two hour version of the movie is that it often feels like a trailer for a much more thorough and logical version of this story that you're told. Because characters like appear and disappear. And again, like we talked about it, or with, like um, Duncan Idaho. Yes, Duncan yeah. Idaho ha makes has no business being in this adaptation whatsoever. But things like Two for, Two for Hyatt, for example, who has an entire subplot in the second half of the movie, which goes absolutely nowhere in the theatrical cut, but which has a purpose when you look at the deleted scenes because it's designed to pay off. Like we talked, I think, on Star Wars about the importance of editing in saving a movie. So like George Lucas's original Star Wars cut was terrible. And then Marsha Lucas came in and she kind of trimmed it down. She made it tighter and kind of defined like modern Hollywood editing. Dune, I would argue, almost suffers from the opposite example, where somebody was told to come in, take this three-hour movie, and make it two hours, but with no regard for, like, the cohesion of the two-hour product. So instead of, like, removing entire subplots, they tried to cut every subplot down by 30%. And some of those subplots lost material in the middle, and that's fine. Some of them lost material at the start, so you're like, who's that? Why is that person there? What are they doing? And some of them lost, like, that 30% at the end. So it's like, wait, where did that character go? Why did we spend so much time about milking cats? How is this relevant to anything that's going on? Um, and so it kind of, like, suffers from being disjointed like that. But I think that if you are familiar with Dune, I think the movie works a lot better because you're a lot less lost, but you can also just enjoy the lynchness of it. So yeah, that would be my, my recommendation there. All right, with that in mind then, we will segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Zone. So, Joe, what is Dune about for you? Well, it's about two and a half hours. Uh, <laughs> it's um, of your life you're never getting back. No, I, I don't regret watching it. Um, like I said, as a curio, uh, it is the really weird thing about it is it is kind of a conventional hero's journey. It's really the plot is really like. Avatar or Dances with Wolves and I know I'm throwing in a story about a real guy as well, Lawrence of Arabia about this like outsider who goes to this new place where now under normal storytelling circumstances takes him a while to ingratiate himself with the natives but in this one it's just like hey how would you like to be our messiah uh, we saw your LinkedIn pretty impressive um, so it's yeah, it's a hero's journey story. It's um, like the life of Brian. <laughs> it's like the life of Brian. Is, is Paul a very naughty boy? <laughs> um, so yeah, it is a it's a hero's journey story uh, on onto which Herbert in his book put lots of his um, to use a pop star uh, Lonely Island reference incredible thoughts. So he he put loads of his incredible thoughts into it <laughs> and. And many of them are incredible, and that's fine. Um, but it just, in try, yeah, it just became, it became too much plot. And some of the characters, as you said, Darren, could have just been cut out entirely. If you're going to cut out most of what some of them are up to, you might as well just, just cut, them cut them all out entirely. Um, so, but yeah, it is the story about colonialism and about how. It, a relatively ordinary person 
becomes an extraordinary person. I guess that's what it's about. But for others, it's just about the journey. It's about space worms. <laughs> um, and Charlene, what about yourself? What, what do you think? What is Dune about for you? Space worms and stuff. <laughs> all about the space worms. I mean, I feel like the the whole, the the basic plot of it is uh, is. I don't really care to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> it's grand. Uh, it's like everything else I've ever seen. Not particularly interested in stories like that, but it is. It's about the world that's created, and um, I think the book and the film offer two very different things. And to me, the film just offers this like mad world, and I really enjoy the spirit of it all. So that that's what Dune is for me. Because it's worth noting, actually, again, Herbert's kind of positioned it very much as an ecological text. Apparently the idea for Dune came to him when he was researching Dunes, um, ironically enough, in, in deserts and desert cultures for the US Department of Agriculture. And he wrote this article, which ultimately ended up never being published because it was apparently far too long by the time he was finished with it. But the idea about like of changing ecologies and kind of the way in which kind of dune moves and the way in which dunes swallow their environments and the idea of like planting grass in order to anchor the dunes and prevent them from swallowing the world around them. So it kind of it does have this kind of like very 60s style kind of like emerging kind of environmentalism theme going on there as well. It feels like there's a lot about oil in there and like... You know the landscape and you know that that kind of stuff um, as well, which I think is is interesting. Yeah, fighting over resources and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of Middle Eastern kind of philosophy there, like Madi, for example, is I think that was African, but again, Islamic, um, and a lot of the traditions that the Fremen and stuff like that. A lot of the language is taken as well from Arabic and from kind of like Middle Eastern traditions and stuff like that, which is interesting because I think it got it's weird because it was written before things like the oil crisis, for example, and it was written before that stuff really came to prominence, and it kind of it's weird because it's hard to watch the movie or read the book without thinking of that even though it was all speculative when it was written herbert was saying hey maybe at some point in the future there will be an attempt to disrupt the flow of this material that we use to propel all of the objects that get us around this space that we inhabit and that would be a crisis that we would have to deal with but luckily it's only in the science fiction world that's all that's the Why only do we, when will we ever learn to listen to <laughs> sci-fi writers like when will we learn Fiction is usually just telling us something. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I think actually what's what's interesting about the movie and what I actually really like about kind of Lynch's Dune is that it's also, the book was written in 1965 and so there's a lot of 60s culture in there. And the spices, like it's not only like petrol and gasoline, the spice is basically LSD. Like the spice expands life and the spice, ex spice expands consciousness. Um, and like the spice, the way in which the spice allows the guild navigators to travel it allows them to travel to any part of the universe without moving, man. It's a real trip. And the idea, like, you have, like, at one moment, he's like, the spice, you know, with my training, the spice didn't change my view. It expanded my consciousness. And I kind of, like, the thing that I actually really like about Lynch's Dune is that it feels trippy in that way. Like, the logic of it is the logic of a dream. And it's all that stuff that kind of Joe mentioned, which is, yes, there is a lot of unnecessary voiceover. There's a lot of exposition that's delivered rather clumsily. But there's a lot of these old fashioned kind of like fades and cuts and kind of montages of like star fields and faces over star fields that really feels kind of, again, feels trippy, which is kind of, I say this as somebody who has never taken a mind altering substance. So I don't know well, if trips I, actually I work like this. I don't think you have to. And I, I, I think if it, if it had been if if Jodorowsky had had done it, it would be the kind of movie that that that, that you might 
kind of not appreciate if you hadn't kind of taken the tab of LSD. But I, I think for for Lynch's one, he can take that that story and um, kind of express that more sort of allegorically, where, where the movie becomes, it's not just about um, ecology and um, politics and economics. It's a very kind of a personal theme as well about the kind of tra transformative power of either traveling to another place or kind of getting away from something that you're you're familiar with or just of 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 the power of 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 change to awaken. to 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 awaken things in you um and of the danger of of getting too kind of accustomed to our world i suppose um so yeah i, I don't think I, I, it, it, like this movie i don't think um like it's naive to kind of talk, maybe talk of it in in in, in terms of drugs. Although certainly, yeah, I, I agree that the the the, the Herbert um, uh, stuff might um, uh, might play into that. Well, yeah, it's not necessarily drugs. It's, it. it's more kind of the kind of the awakening, the idea of kind of like consciousness, subconsciousness, and stuff like that. So maybe drugs is a bad example. Though. I do think that they were. Well, it's probably part, part of the. It's in the ether in the sixties, and like those conversations were about. So it might not be like you have to take mind altering drugs to enjoy doing, but like I'm sure that that was like the writing was influenced by even those conversations. Yeah. No, I I don't I don't disagree. Certainly, like in in terms of and 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 I haven't read the the Herbert thing, but um I think in in Lynch's hands it's possible for it to 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 for for you to kind of divorce it from that almost. Yeah. Well, because it becomes um, almost like dreams. Because again, that's the thing when, with Lynch. Yeah. Like most of Lynch's movies, like again, the stereotype of talking about movies that feel like dreams, like again, Sherlock Jr. or Inception and stuff like that. But like Lynch's movies genuinely feel like dreams. And again, it's kind of like Joe mentioned this. It's like you watch Mulholland Drive. Can you describe the plot of Mulholland Drive in a way that makes like logical, linear sense that doesn't make it sound like you're describing a waking dream or experience? Lost Highway. Do you understand like the logic that it works on in a very grounded way as opposed to one based on, you know, symbolism and dream logic? And I think feeling. Lynch is very, very good. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. I think that Lynch's kind of approach to storytelling is very similar to that i think he's talked about how like eraserhead was about his um like him coming to terms of being a father and it's like you look at the movie it's like okay yeah sure i, 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 I can see that i guess um but like watching dune it it feels very it's it's the one of the rare blockbusters that does feel like a dream and again, maybe maybe I'm being too generous here. Maybe I'm just excusing its faults. But like the way in which the, the story unfolds, the use of voiceover when it's not just exposition, when it's like Kyle McLaughlin saying, Father, 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 um, the sleeper oh. has awakened. Yeah, By the way, stuff. it's it's a fun thing to do, um, like to pretend that you're asleep and kind of toss and turn, <laughs> say, Dune. <laughs> Desert planet, Arrakis. Oh, uh, uh, I've actually done that. Um, yeah, me too. But, but not not about Dune. So it would be like my wife walks into the room, and then uh, it would be something we were talking about. And I would just close my eyes and be like, "Schwarzenegger season in the house. We must plan it." And, so, and then I'd pretend to wake up, and that, that was a dream, and I was talking in my sleep. And there's a bit. Um, it, I think the inspiration was uh, 
when Homer was dreaming about Sheriff Lobo in The Simpsons and <laughs> talking in his sleep. And the, the bit at the start of Dune when Kyle MacLachlan is tossing and turning and saying stuff aloud is exactly like the Homer Simpson Lobo <laughs> moment. In the Simpsons. I, I think part of the... Uh, key to, to to getting or appreciating this movie is is realizing or remembering that Lynch really loves the soap opera sort of aesthetic or or or, or medium like like from in in Twin Peaks that comes across quite a lot but the the, the Mulholland Drive um yeah yeah absolutely and that 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 people think that it's um, sort of unfortunate or unintentional, and I don't think it is. Or that, that it's a that... deconstruction or a subversion. And like you read interviews with Lynch, it's like, no, I, w- I just wanted to make a soap opera. This yeah, is just what yeah, happens yeah, yeah. when I try to make a soap opera, which I kind of love. Um, and you get the sense that Dune is what happens when he tries to make a crowd pleasing blockbuster. Um, and like again, there is something about the the dream logic aspect of of how David Lynch works, and like he generally, you know, works within budgets where he he does have a lot of control. But like you don't interrupt dream logic with cuts. So like him not having final cut and him having to cut an hour out of whatever, like all of that just doesn't lend itself to how David Lynch works. So like all of the things that we like about Dune, perhaps if he'd been just left to his own devices completely, it would have all coalesced in a way that it just isn't allowed to. And like I think specifically David Lynch, his way of working doesn't lend itself to pseudo interference or you know, that cut an hour out of your three hour film, because it is that like it is a dream logic. There is the kind of like a a meditative feeling to a lot of what's going on or like it all kind of makes sense as you're watching it. But as soon as it's over, you forgot how it even made sense for a minute. You know, <laughs> that's a lot of that. So I think it's it's quite a unique um version of events i think oh i I was just wondering charlene is this the beginning of the hashtag release the lynch cut like the release the snyder cut for <laughs> justice league oh i play it in my cinema if anyone would ever let me that would be great <laughs> lynch, has said, lynch has said no he was he was universal actually offered to pay him money to come back and to remaster his version and he said no he was just done with it um and it sounds uh, like it was a bit of a nightmare shoot he probably didn't even get everything he wanted to get in fairness yeah well, I mean, to to be fair, to, he cooperated quite a bit with the like with the ending. He went back and he shot material for it. I think the final straw was when they produced a three hour cut for television that was designed to air as a mini series without his involvement in it whatsoever. Um, in fact, it's one of the famous examples of the Alan Smithy credits. One of the first big examples of it, where he insisted that his his uh, it be credited to director Alan Smithy, um, and that it be credited to writer Judas Booth. Um, just in case you didn't get how Lynch felt about what they'd done to the movie. So apparently that was the point at which he said, no, I, I'm done with Dune. I'm not going to go back. I'm not going to re-edit it. I'm not going to try and reconstruct it. But uh, it's a shame. It's him as the third stage guild navigator, just kind of reversing <laughs> out of the room and saying, I did not direct this. <laughs> I was, I was never here. here. <laughs> yeah. um, but I mean, like, again, this is the thing where people talk about this not being or feeling like Lynch intersection intersecting kind of with a big budget movie like this is still lynch's work more than as much as it is a studio blockbuster and you see it in things like you know the flowers in the sequence with like the really pretty boy with the heart plug and we'll maybe talk about the heart plugs in a moment because they're very strange but like that sequence is like the flowers from blue velvet 
You have like all the Wizard of Oz imagery, particularly in Getty Prime, where it's literally an Emerald City, which again is stuff that Lynch keeps coming back to, most obviously in Wild at Heart. The design of the Guild Navigators, which is something never even mentioned or described in the book, is like very much, it's been described as what if the baby from a razor head grew up and went to college and got himself a job driving a bus. Um, Like this is like, for all that this is not a Lynch film, for all that Lynch disowns it, it it does have the texture and the feel of it. And I think I would argue like that's one of the things that makes and, it interesting. Oh, sorry, go Andrew. No, and, and the in utero kind of scenes as well. Oh, um, yeah, with Alia, just, like where she's just kind of yeah. in blood kind of, yeah. And it, that's one of the things that even in the extended cut is very strange because like you're just, you're just exposition dumped about Alia. Like there's no reason for Alia to be in the script that's written because all you hear about her is other people talking about her. Um, and I, like, no, you I like... need her in this. <laughs> to kill if the only, if yeah, if 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 only just for the the shot of her in in like kind of bloodthirsty ecstasy and <laughs> yeah, just like With holding knife. a knife <laughs> in the desert. Yeah, that's incredible. That does. Seem... It's in the trailer, I think, as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's Alicia Witt, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, those scenes were were quite fun. Uh, I I'm always I'm always down for a creepy kid in a movie, but yeah, she did as a character. She did just kind of come out of nowhere. Um, there's a lot of where's Poochie going on. Uh, I find in God, I, I don't normally make so many Simpsons references. <laughs> I, yes, I, you do. I'm not, and it's fine. <laughs> I'm not a BuzzFeed article. Uh, but uh, but yeah, there there was a lot of where's Pucci going on before she was introduced. But she was one of the few actors I thought, even though she was like five or something, that really seemed to be having a blast in the few scenes she was in. Actually, no, no most, wait a minute, no, a few of them were like enjoying it. themselves. The bad guys were. Um, yeah, I think Pat- Patrick Stewart. Uh, the I well, I yeah, I think loads of of, of people do do great and have a lot of fun i think sting has a lot of fun um too um whether they were having fun or not patrick stewart was apparently cast at the last possible minute the apparently the the actor who was supposed to be playing the role dropped out and lynch cast patrick stewart because he thought he was another patrick stewart that he'd seen perform richard the fourth on stage um, and apparently <laughs> when, by the time by the time they'd flown him to mexico and he'd been been interviewed with Lynch in the hotel room and they'd begun fitting him for a still suit, it was too late to fire him and hire somebody else. So that's how Patrick Stewart ended up in Dune. Wow, that's awkward. He's very good. He's great. Very good. Yeah. He's having a lot of fun. You can hear yeah. his you can hear his Yorkshire accent in this movie more than in anything else I've seen. And, and him him going into battle with the pug in his coat. Yes. Like, have we gotten to the 20 minutes where we talk about pugs? Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the, the pugs are one of the characters that actually suffer from like the weird editing that goes on where like yeah. in the extended cut, the pugs are more ple- present throughout. You spend more time on say Caladan and like there's the pug is always wandering through the sets on Caladan because it represents the Duke. It's the representative of like House of Trade for some reason it's it's not in the book it's it's just something that lynch thought would be fun to add to the script so like throughout these scenes that were cut from the movie the dog is like sniffing around paul's leg or like the moment where you know like in the theatrical cut there's a moment where like 
Brad Dorif, and we'll talk about him in a moment, Charlene, don't worry. Um, but like the moment where like Brad Dorif arrives with the response from the Duke that says, I've turned down our meeting. But like in the extended cut, you get to see the Duke signing that and sealing it with his Duke ring, which is why the Duke ring is so important. But in it, he's like petting the pug on his desk. And it's like, ah, I see where this is going. Whereas in the- How long is the extended cut? I might've seen the extended cut. Three hours. Two hours and 10 minutes? Three hours. Oh. Oh, okay. No, no, I saw that bit. Okay, well, the pug shows With up. The... the pug shows up when they're going to light speed. The only the sequence in the theatrical cut, the pug is there. Paul is petting the pug when they go to light speed. But I kind of like. There's so much like that that is like makes sense in a three hour cut, but doesn't in the version you see. Like things like say Thufir Howitt, the the Menta character who is captured by the Harkonnens. He's given a heart plug and he's told that he has to milk a cat that is like stitched to a, a rat for some reason. <laughs> and like, oh, like in in the extended cut, that's because at the end, like they want him to assassinate Paul, and he has this big moment where he says, "Do you think I would fail the Atreides three times?" And he pulls out his heart plug and sacrifices his life in this big noble sacrifice. And in fact, actually, if you watch the theatrical cut, it's amazing because when Paul arrives in the meeting room with the Emperor, they do a pan across the crowd, and Howard is in the background of that first pan. And then he just disappears from the shots later in that sequence because obviously they filmed and cut his death sequence. Um, he's just not there anymore whatsoever. It's delightful. There are lots of moments like that that are very weird and very strange and kind of get to the sense of not editing this properly. Um, not like cutting it down properly and creating all this weird nonsense. But Charlene, yes, let's talk about Brad Dorf, the first person cast in the movie. Really? Yeah. <laughs> he initially turned it down. He had to take a meeting with Lynch to convince him to do it. And he was worried that like playing this character in Dune would get him typecast as weirdos and serial killers and psychopaths. Right. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That was going to uh, happen yeah. anyway, Brad Dorf. Yeah. But like, so, he's just so good at playing weirdos and serial killers. <laughs> so like, uh, I, I, I think he's such an extraordinary actor. I'm not going to go on to, about this like for Forever and ever, but um, but I I think he's one of those rare actors who just if someone told me that he was an alien who was put on this earth to act, I would be like, oh yeah, actually that kind of makes sense. I just think he's got such a weird presence, um, and he's wonderful, and I think he's brilliant in this film. I love him in it. His eyebrows, such, his eyebrows. I mean, as if you needed to make him look even more like striking looking <laughs> it's like the opposite of what they did with him in lord of the rings where they just got rid of his eyebrows <laughs> yeah, i love the idea that yeah we have brad Dorf, but he just looks too much like a conventional leading man is there anything we can do to make him look kind of more like a character actor i know let's add eyebrows well he did like apparently he did this whole thing where and again it's one of those things where it's one of those odd little touches never explained but you'll notice when he's acting he does a lot of acting with his hands and yeah so he, oh yeah gestures it's great like yeah, yeah, like, go, go. <laughs> yeah, that sort of stuff. Sorry, listeners can't see because this is an audio medium. Um, but yeah, apparently that was all just. I think from... Darren just said he's going to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I said, take Andrew Run. to the. I said, take Andrew to the desert. Throw them to the worms. Um, yeah, like, I love like... the the delivery as well. I think Paul Smith's delivery as well. He's playing. He's playing Raban. Um, where he says, "Go now, take him to the desert, 
to die. To die. It's, um, it's the pause. It, yeah. <laughs> it's great. It's the, like there, a little ellipsis. Yeah. It's, in case there was any ambiguity. Really I love the idea that Harkonnen and Henchman were like, what do we do when we get him to the desert? <laughs> to die. Take him um, to the desert for a yeah. barbecue. Look after him forever. <laughs> Take him to the oh, desert. It, Make sure he's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it re- it reminds me of another thing as well that we used to do in that house that we lived in above the bookshop. Um, yeah, Donal used to, to like. Uh-huh. No, Donal used to approach myself and Adam, and he would say, "Fade, Raban." <laughs> <laughs> I did love, anyway, I love the sorry. sequence where Raban like walks in and there's just a cow hanging upside down and he tears its tongue out so he can just eat it in the scene that follows, which is one of those delightfully kind of weird Lynchian touches. Um, it's terrific. Yeah, like that's where did they find that cow? <laughs> great performance, but like that's the thing is there is so much kind of weird little stuff happening at the margin that kind of just gives it a little bit of kind of color and makes it kind of distinct, um, as opposed to what it probably could have been otherwise there's like again it's little touches like and again it's notable that a lot of this stuff carries over to later adaptations so things like the baron floating in the book the baron uses the belt but to walk he he cannot walk without the suspender belt here he is as joe described like a thanksgiving day parade balloon where he just kind of flies to the air and covers himself in oil and pulls out heart plugs randomly of people so he can scatter their blood against the wall. But things like Raban, who I think appears in a cup in like a chapter of the book at most and is mentioned a couple of times, here Raban becomes this weird, monstrous character, which he again appears to be in many, many later adaptations as well. Again, a lot of this, and even things like, say, the the guns, the laser guns that are powered by words, which are an entirely Lynchian creation. Very odd. Just, yeah, they're Very so, odd. so strange. It's, um, but again, that kind of gets at, if we want to be generous, maybe that gets at the whole idea of, you know, like jihad and, and religious belief and the idea of like extremism and the idea of the word becoming dangerous. My name is a killing word. If you want to be generous, maybe, I don't know. Quiet. Uh, that's, also... that's a bit of a reach. I <laughs> We're doing nothing but reaching on this podcast. Yeah. Um, well, because I mean, it is worth kind of, again, one of the things that distinguishes this movie as a, as a Lynch movie, I would argue is that like, while De Laurentiis thought he was getting a, a star Wars ripoff or a star Wars knockoff, you watch the movie and it's very clear that's not what Lynch wants to do. Lynch wants to do what Lynch always wants to do, which is this 50s nostalgia. So, like, look at the way that the guild ships fly or look at the way that the ships fly over Arrakis or over Caladan. They kind of hum and they hover like flying saucers in something like, God forgive me, Plan 9 from Outer Space. They have that kind of, like, feel to it, like a 50s B-movie. Um, the sword like the day the earth again, stood still, that kind of thing. Yeah, 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 that sort of stuff as well. And things like, you know, for example, the way in which the desert scenes are shot like, well, like Lawrence of Olivia, like Lawrence of Arabia, but also even like, say, biblical movies like the Ten Commandments. So things like the the bit at the end where Paul literally makes it rain. Um, and it's a miracle, which apparently was one thing that really upset book fans and really upset Frank Herbert. But it's something that feels like it's kind of Lynch doing something like The Robe or The Ten Commandments. It's like this is David Lynch's version of like a 1950s biblical epic. Even the decision to like, again, it's it's the technology that was used as well, because there's a lot of green screen, a lot of map work going on here as well, which Star Wars had kind of pushed past. Because again, like Star Wars was very much a throwback to 30s and 40s serials, but it pushed the boundaries in terms of like special effects. How its special effects were done by industrialized magic was at the cutting edge. Whereas Dune 
is consciously shot using 50s style special effects. There's lots of model work there. There's lots of matte paintings. There's lots of kind of super, uh, you know, super, sorry, what to call that, uh, like montage and collage effects going on as well. Um, overlay, that sort of stuff as well. Oh, sorry. Uh, some of the space flying sequences were quite beautiful, I thought. Um, at the bit near the start when they're leaving the tropical planet, uh, which I can't remember the name of. And Caledon, I think, yeah. Well done. Um, when the bit when they're leaving that and the kind of disc-shaped spaceships are flying through this portal in space, and then that worm-like creature is flying through space, it's quite beautiful. And there's a handful of of scenes that are like that, are kind of majestic and beautiful. And yeah, of course, whether or not that coalesces into a film worth watching is up for debate. Someone should do a podcast about it, uh, but. But yeah, no, I did. I did think some of the the set design was amazing and retro, as I said. And then yeah. the there were international influences as well. Some of the costumes looked like SS costumes, and then others looked like Victorian. And then some some looked like English Victorian costumes, and then one of the buildings looked like the Taj Mahal uh, to my Western eyes. And yeah, there was there was quite a melange of of influences there but yeah the i i thought the the space flight scenes were quite beautiful i wanted a bit more of them and there probably is somewhere in that three-hour cut it's very very fascistic and the villains um, yeah 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 i mean again the kind of punk aesthetic of the guild when they show up and they're all wearing like leather and they're kind of like wired into themselves but even things like, say, the still suits, which look like what the Borg will be wearing on Star Trek The Next Generation in a couple of years as well. Like, that's the thing. It's like one of the big criticisms that was made of Dune, particularly in the wake of Star Wars, was that it didn't look pretty. It looked dirty and it looked grungy and it looked ugly. And I kind and very industrial as well, particularly, say, Giddy Prime. And again, that's, that's another kind of Lynch thing where you look at movies like industrial. Razorhead and stuff like mm. that. Yeah, just these big industrial kind of wastelands, rotting steel. And it's amazing when you hear Lynch talk about it. Because when Lynch talks about things like rusting steel and like decay and girders, like it's not like he's commenting on how ugly and awful they are. Um, it's like, no, 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 it's beautiful. You leave steel out in the rain and then it starts to rust. And it's just, it's a whole new thing. Um, like, like there's this wonderful interview where Ebert like is talking to Lynch after the release of Dune and Ebert really hated how ugly it looked. And uh, you know, when Dune was released, I was struck by how ugly it was, how deliberately ugly he made its planets and their life forms. I, it had none of the awe, wonderment and beauty of many science fiction films. I gather that was rather deliberate. Lynch described his feelings about painting to me. You go by most paintings and they don't stop you. You can walk by so many because it's merely beautiful. I like to feel you could bite my paintings. Not to eat them, but to hurt them. I like to feel like I'm <laughs> painting with my teeth. I call my painting bad because bad painting has its own beauty. It's not a designer tapestry or commercial hype. It makes you react to it. And yeah, like I kind of, I like the ugliness of it or kind of the old fashionedness of it and the kind of like grittiness of it, the kind of texture of yeah, it. Yeah, I think it's beautiful looking. And I know like in that, in that David Lynchy way, but like, I mean, I'm not a Star Wars fan at all. And I, I think there's something about how Star Wars looks that is a bit like too colorful or like something that it just makes me feel like it's, for children or like something. I always quite dismissive of them based on how they look. Um, and I think Dune looks really beautiful to me because it just looks a little bit darker, a little bit 
as you, grungier is kind of a really good term, which I suppose if it's supposed to be the next Star Wars, then looking grungy is not part of the package at all. So like, I totally understand why people reacted in that way. But uh, personally, it wouldn't even occur to me to think that its ugliness was a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, it's and and it's so kind of clear, like like the with with the kind of close up of the 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 doctor lancing the boils and telling mm. him how beautiful he is. Yeah. The like how so um <laughs> horrific the um this the scene with the, the 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 flower boy comes in and he's terrified like from from the beginning and this very kind of um sort of um a creepy sort of sexual sexual kind of predatory sort of vibe to um how uh, the baron kind of just hovers over the boy and this this like needless murder just kind of for kicks um and in a pg-13 yeah. film which is quite remarkable like you, you look at this and like, wow, yeah. you, you hear like lynch saying okay well we couldn't have stings dick in it because that would make it or and it's like you're looking at it going but everything else was fine right stings dick is an automatic or yeah <laughs> <laughs> Lancing someone's boils is fine, yeah. <laughs> especially boils, if you're saying yeah. how beautiful it is. Yeah. Crushing, <laughs> crushing, yeah. crushing, I think like Joe mentioned this: crushing a small mouse in order to make like a soft drink for Raban is also cool as well. Yeah, but was the, it? Again, I love that. Was it a bug or something? Oh, I thought I thought it was a mouse. I thought it looked like, and again, that would tie the Madi being the desert mouse. But again, maybe I'm giving too much credit. It it looked like a kind of like a Jim Henson creature anyway that was being crushed. Um, which somehow makes it even creepier. And I love like the small detail of them just throwing stuff into like the acid vents. Yeah. Like, just like <laughs> just the waste. It reminded me a little of um Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Um in that Yeah. I, I think prior to um Alien and Blade Runner, sci-fi was kind of pristine and sterile and clean looking because people assumed that hey, once we get to the, the future, future will be better. yeah exactly once we get to the future everything will be like showroom and will be perfect and then yeah some somewhere along the way probably Ridley Scott and others decided no people are still gonna smoke and not clean up after themselves and there'll still be machines like hissing like pollution out there so I I see Duna's along that tradition from like say the late 70s up to the late 80s when futuristic machines didn't always work properly um i think of like brazil and the pistons and the steam everywhere and the grubbiness and people are still going to litter in the future uh, so yeah i do see that as a conscious decision um i think it's kind of funny that like nobody pulled the plug on this from a commercial point of view um, so they're like, we're going to make Star Wars. He's like, okay, here's the script. Okay, I have no idea what's going on. Let's proceed with filming this on film, this like incomprehensible script for kids. And then they make it and it's all that stuff we just described in it. And then Universal are like, okay, let's put this out to compete with Return of the Jedi and... Like we'll like, definitely like, make yeah, back. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Million. Like it's crazy that it happened. Uh, but I guess yeah. I remember I interviewed um, back in my journalism days. I interviewed Nate, Nathan Rabin uh, about his My Year of Flops column and subsequent book. And an interesting point he made was that many of the not many 
most of the same instincts that lead to like era defining movies or surprise smash hit movies are the exact same instincts that lead to the biggest fiascos as well. So, you know, like you go big or go home and it was legitimate gamble. And there's other like massive sci-fi blockbusters, like say the matrix, um, that would on paper have looked similarly doomed to failure. In fact, more so doomed to failure. Um, so yeah, I, on the one hand, yes, it's, crazy that they filmed this incomprehensible script with so much money and then on the other hand those kind of crazy bad on paper ideas are a big roll of the dice and can result in the likes of star wars and the matrix and stuff but but here's four people on a saturday morning 35 years later (laughs) (laughs) still having this conversation about dune so, you know, maybe it was the total. <laughs> financially, it was, yeah. And artistically. 30 million artistically and financially, million yes. yes, but... yes. That's totally if it was true. my money, I'd be very upset, yes. You, you won't make your money back, but people will yeah. talk about it. Yeah. I wonder if that sort of trend in in science fiction is kind of the the away from being afraid of some kind of external enemy to... to, to to realizing that it'll probably be us who who kill us, um, or something that we've done will like even an alien, like it's their sort of intrusion on this world that 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 that, that causes all the kind of horror that 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 comes out of it. The aliens don't come to them; they go to the aliens. That it, that it is is it kind of a lessening of the fear of the Soviet Union and that sort of thing, or re. re I, I suppose starting to have more anxieties about these sort of in, internal um, um, issues. Yes. I guess. Yeah. I Anx- well, anxiety about the environment probably played a big part. Yeah. It. And I think it also kind of again not to jump too hard on the whole moon landing nonsense stuff, but it does coalesce with that kind of like late sixties, early seventies disillusionment. So the idea that like after Watergate and Vietnam, you saw this kind of loss of faith in public institutions and the belief that the future was not going to be better. Because after immediately after the Second World War, you had this idea, like in the 50s, that the future was just going to be inherently better, that you were going to build motorways. America was going to be a global superpower. Things were going to be different. This was going to be a new and glorious age. And then you reach the late 60s and all the chaos happens. Then you get into the 70s, Nixon resigns, war, you know, Vietnam is happening. You've got the, the kind of oil crisis. And all of a sudden it's like, no, 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 things are terrible now and they will probably continue to be terrible. And they'll probably, instead of the future being better than it is now, the future will actually be kind of a regression. And Dune is kind of interesting in that regard because it is like it's it's arguably in, like it is more technologically advanced in that you have fast and light travel, but it's regression because it's feudalism. And like they've actually like outlawed computers. You have human beings who serve as computers, mentats. And the whole point of mentats is that and it happens again, I think we kind of alluded to this with Jessica, the idea that in Dune the central ton- tension is like treating people as people versus as cogs in a machine. And the idea that like people have their own agency and their own desire, and that's why systems falter and break. Like throughout Dune, you have the idea that characters have roles to play in larger plans, and that they refuse to do that, or they're unable to do that, or that they're unable to get past their own feelings and their own anxieties. So you know, you have the idea that like 
Paul was supposed, the idea was to Paul would be a girl and she'd be married to Fade. And as a result, then you would have peace between the major houses finally and everything would be stable. But like instead you actually have, oh, no, 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 Paul's a boy. And this is because Leto wanted a boy. And you end up unleashing this kind of like jihad that basically kind of like wipes across the cosmos and is terrifying. Like, again, this is one of the things that, like, in Herbert's book, it's more explicit that, like, what Paul's doing is not a good thing. Like, Paul's crusade, as it's described, is going to have horrific consequences. But even in, like, the the screenplay of Dune is less ambiguous. Um, I think it's uh, Joe's right to call it a conventional heroic narrative. But because it's David Lynch making it, it takes on this weird uncanny quality. Where, like, you see scenes in Dune that are very similar to triumphant scenes in Star Wars. So, like, the sequence where Paul goes out and dresses his troops and he's shot from low angles. Like, that's very similar to, like, the medal ceremony at the end of the original Star Wars. Except look at the way Lucas shoots those scenes. Like, they do have the low angles, but everybody's smiling and everybody's hugging and it's friendly and they've got medals and it's great and they're clapping and it's wonderful. But you look at the sequences in Dune where that happens and like Paul's like steps- Nuremberg. That's it, exactly. Paul steps out and he's standing on this plinth. He's dressed in grey. He's not smiling. He's raising his fist. There are banners below in the style of crucifixes. And it all looks incredibly creepy and unsettling. And things like, again, Alia, which again, creepy kids are great, but that shot of like a little girl holding a knife, dancing in this like blood-stained, kind of like battered, burning world. I kind of like the idea that you get that little bit of kind of like an unsettling, the little bit of kind of like, I think that Herbert described Dune as my plan with Dune was to give you the Superman fantasy and to make you feel uncomfortable. And while I think that Lynch's Dune on a script level, on a text level, doesn't question the fantasy in the same way that the book does, it's just weird enough that you go, well, actually, this Chosen One stuff is really, really unsettling. Or was is that just me? Am I being too generous? To no, I, I think so. The, the the addition of the him being able to make it rain thing, I mean, that that's a little bit confusing because you're kind of like, oh, so he is a true messiah or whatever. But maybe maybe it doesn't make a difference, like whether you're supernatural being or not. Maybe being all powerful is not a good thing anyway. So I definitely agree with you that it's shot in such a way that you're not supposed to feel comfortable. It's not like cheerful. Um, and Which I, is probably I definitely another reason why it wasn't as successful it. as Star Wars. Um, well, yeah, exactly. It's definitely not crowd pleaser. <laughs> but yeah, I I would agree with that. Um, assuming it's deliberate, but yeah, I certainly feel the yeah. same as you, Darren. Yeah, it's hard to tell what Lynch what ambition is. Oh, sorry, what intention is? Because like you you re- you watch things and you're like, oh, that clearly symbolizes like discomfort and unease. And Lynch is like, no, actually, when I was a kid, I was riding on a bus once and I saw this thing and I thought it'd be cool to put it in this thing. I was just going to say that David Lynch traditionally uses Colin McLaughlin in that way, right? Like. He's he's such a, a likable actor and then he brings him to dark places and that's what he does with him and he's just brilliant. Both of them are brilliant at that. Uh, so I kind of assume that that's where he was like, you know, that's where he found Kyle McLaughlin and then continued to use him as such for his entire career. I figured the rain was Toto's idea. <laughs> Did they chase the rain out of Africa? The rain down in Arrakis. Yeah, oh, exactly. Wow. Nobody, nobody's going to beat that statement, Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) All right, then. So I think that about wraps it up then, unless there's anything else you want to talk about, anything that we haven't discussed already with Dune, anything kind of jumping out at people. Let's give, oh, sorry. uh, Two things I want to say. One is that I thought Dean Stockwell was a bit miscast, not just because he was a white guy playing an Asian guy, um, but. Yeah, that's kind of strange. (laughs) uh, But 
yeah, he um, you know him best as the sidekick in Quantum Leap, and he was uh, the gangster. That, that was after this, I think, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, like, and he was a gangster and married to the mob, and he was also in Blue Velvet. Uh, but, yeah, I found him a little stranded or stilted or something. And then, also, yeah, we have to get past the fact that, man, that character was totally not a white guy in the book. Um, and then the other thing I just want to say is shout out to Toto's score, which was pretty good. I thought pretty epic. <laughs> oh, it's really hey, good. Yeah. yeah. Joe's pretty good on a Dune podcast means it was fantastic. <laughs> um, it's, <laughs> we're grading on a curve here. And the Brian Eno theme as well, the kind of prophecy theme. It's um, so cool. Another uh, reason you should see it on a big screen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I will say, actually, just um, before we kind of get that, it is, it is worth noting in terms of Stockwell's performance, I think, again, that's one of the problems with the adaptation is that, like, it tries to turn who's the traitor to the Atreides into a plot point when it doesn't have any room whatsoever. Like, yeah. there's like there's no space in the movie to have this kind of thing. Because in the book, there's this whole thing where, oh, my God, is it Jessica? Oh, my God, is it Thufir? In the film where you literally only have like 40 minutes before we get to Patrick Stewart and the battle pug. It's like, we don't really need this mystery. Nobody's really that invested in the mystery. So why are you devoting so much attention to it? Uh, which yeah. is very distracting. Again, it, it's one of those things where you see the edit and you're like, this just cut the character almost entirely. Just like have him show up and then have him be the traitor and you don't need any more there. Don't try and because give it's so complicated. Things. It's like I'm I'm not going to kill you. <laughs> I'm gonna put I'm gonna put a poisonous gas tooth in your mouth and then you're gonna get brought to the baron and then hopefully your mouth will get close enough to the baron's face that you can then poison it. Like what be that's like I mean <laughs> uh, whatever way you make that work in a in a very long book. <laughs> shorthand for that is uh jesus <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah just just make it like a face cream sorry no did the, you were talking about the kind of star uh star wars references and in terms of penises that are also vaginas um they kind of sarlacc Yes, oh, yeah. Our uh, space lug sort of look <laughs> of the... I have one of, here in of, my background. Of, of the worms. The yeah, yeah, we, we, can, <laughs> we, we can see it. it. It's not quite as explicit, but yeah. The, well, we can't the... see the vagina bit. <laughs> no, no, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah, the, the, but, yeah. The one in Denny Villeneuve's Dune trailer is striking because it's both a penis and an asshole, which is an interesting. Yes. Kind of, like it's an interesting. Oh shift wow. the premise. Yeah, it's like I feel like the designer was like, I feel like we've already done this kind of like weird eighties union of penis and vagina. What haven't we combined? And it's like, yeah. yep, there we go. I don't know. It's like There's... female sexual organ erasure. I'm not. I'm not happy with this. <laughs> They, oh, we have they, anuses as well, so <laughs> they fine. took all of the ones they removed from cats and, and just put and them put on the worms. Um, it's the law of conservation of buttholes. I think yeah. that's what we call it. It was a new avenue to explore, you know. <laughs> um, I, it, I bet say it's a very 2017 decision because there's some really fun stuff on both sides. Is uh, kind of how it. <laughs> I apologize for that. Um, very quickly, we should also probably acknowledge that the issue with the the Baron as well, in terms of kind of like him being this weird pederast homophobic kind of eighties villain as well. Uh, like one of the criticisms of the movie is that again we mentioned like the the Wellington UA Asian character played by Dean Stockwell thing, but there's also the Baron being this very gay predator thing, which is a very eighties movie kind of thing. Particularly like the lancing of his boils in the eighties as well, which is a little uncomfortable in the context of stuff like the AIDS pandemic. Yeah, and, I think that, sorry. and the book and the movie 
both dislike fat people and it's really uncool. Like the book has like... Well, the world dislikes fat people. I think uh, all of fiction dislikes fat people and that's uh, yeah. something I'd really like if we could ever get away from, but it does. <laughs> like It's like, he's so fat, he can't even carry himself, therefore he is evil. It's really the the books. Okay. Sorry, they fixed that in inverted commas in the um in the tie-in books and prequels, where it's explained that it's not just that he's fat because he eats so much. He's fat because he was infected by a special virus that made him fat as a punishment for being so evil. So the two um, things are yeah, I know. So like we it's like it's like we didn't like the message of like communicating that fat people are evil. What we thought is we'd flip it round and we'd say evil people are fat. That's a progressive statement. That's like when so we're making making them fat as a punishment. Yeah. And it's wow. like, yeah, Brian Herbert and Kevin Anderson, you've done it again. Um, thank you for fixing that problem with Dune by somehow making it worse. That was uncool, I thought. It was uncool in the book and the movie, the way they lay it on so thick. Um, but like it's also of its time as well. I think if you were like I read books published sometimes and they don't do that as much. They don't. And I think people would laugh at it and it would be pointed out in reviews. If uh, I'm the same with old James Bond books are like that with, and it's people who are not physically attractive are often villains in old James Bond books and stuff. And when it turns up. Live and Let Die is something. Have you read the book version of Live and Let Die? It is oh. something for very obvious reasons. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah. And like, it's just something that when it does turn up now, it is rightfully dismissed as not only uncool, but a bit hacky as well. And so it's just not every film, not every book written in, what was it, 1964 or something like that? 1964. Yeah, not every word is going to age well. And that is one of the bits that, in my opinion, is not age well. And in the, the David Lynch movie as well, that has not aged well. And then but yeah. people, people sometimes complain about, um, well, we maybe we should be looking at things in the context of the time. But I think it's nice that we're, it shows that we've progressed. Um, uh, we know this thing a bit jarring now sometimes. I mean, like, we, we all love Dune with the exception of Joe, and Joe, Joe tolerates Dune. Um, but no, like, I mean, I think, I think it's fair to be able to call out those things, and it is worth noting. I think it's been pointed out that a large part of the Baron's characterization may have been informed, according to, I think, Brian Herbert, Frank's son, by Frank Herbert's relationship with his own gay son, where he was not comfortable with that. And so that homophobia or that response to his son coming out. Uh, may have coloured the characterization of the Baron. Um, so that's that's kind of the context for that, which is very sad. Um, is there a kind of a paranoia of of his son being a victim of, of the, kind of older men, or maybe well, again, that's one of those cliches um, and kind of stereotypes that you saw. Yeah, yeah, no, they, yeah. It, but that's that's kind of makes sense, and in, in, in not not to to kind of endorse it, but in in terms of like an explanation of it. Um, All right. In terms of, of other stuff, very quickly, um, lots of food waste, particularly from the, the Harkonnens, um, in the sense of it doesn't look like he drank all of that mouse. He just kind of just threw it away when he was done with it. That's um, the good mouse for in... visitors. You want to drink enough. Yeah. yeah. You, don't, you don't get all the fiber out of it. It's just the juice. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, in terms of uh, inappropriate, is, no there any, is there any inappropriate smoking apart from when Arakeen is under siege when everything is inappropriately smoking? Oh, well, the, 
the actual smoke in the desert scenes is black smoke, uh, which you can only, the, the kind of smoke that Lynch wanted um, could only be gotten from burning tires. And in that little documentary thing, in that little documentary thing I watched this morning, um, it said, thankfully we were shooting in Mexico where you're allowed burn tires. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's make this ecological movie. Like the cast and crew must have been choked. Yeah, and um, that's horrific. McLaughlin said that if it got in your lungs, you couldn't talk. And in the bit where he bumps into Patrick Stewart in the desert, is like, oh, Patrick Stewart, what are the odds? And they hug and say hello. McLaughlin goes to say his line, and he has a lung full of black tire smoke, and he says he just mind the line because his voice was robbed of them by the smoke so in retrospect that was very dangerous yeah and the the vatican don't need all of those like um <laughs> tires when, when they're no, telling they you do. that they, they haven't have elected a room a full of tires oh, that they burn. <laughs> it's which is it goes up in a chimney <laughs> it comes from the mexican embassy that's technically <laughs> in Mexico. yeah um like it is worth noting, like the trouble production, a shipment of 1,000 pounds of spaghetti was stuck in customs for three months during it. The bed of an ancient volcano that was to be used as a location turned out to be a dump for the carcasses of dead dogs. When Universal bought 60 theatre owners and their wives to the shoot, there were frantic memos sent at the last minute to make sure the toilets were stocked with toilet paper. Apparently during the first month and a half, 15% of the crew was sent to hospital. Um, after a nasty fight involving several of the cast and crew, they imported a chef from Italy who opened her own restaurant on the studio. So yeah, yeah, wow. very very. I like how all the, the the cast seem to be like, oh, working with David Lynch was lovely. <laughs> <laughs> like, apart from the black smoke in my lungs and the lack of you know, spaghetti, the dead dogs, the, the, the lack of toilet the dead paper. Dogs. <laughs> he um, must be a very charming man. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I really hope the dogs in that um, burial site were not the pugs we saw in the movie. <laughs> oh. Oh. We actually had a rotating crew of six pugs for that moment. Um, but yeah, and, and again, it is worth noting as well. Like, I mean, to be fair to Lynch, he said parts of the movie that he did enjoy was the actually building of the sound stages. It was the only time that he got to work on a movie where they actually built sound stages. So things like, say, Caladan, which is only on screen for like 10 minutes had these huge corridors that you could just wander around and get lost in this kind of like oak finishing. And Lynch would say that he would just hang around on the set after hours because it was just great fun. It was like being in a movie. Um, so that's, I kind of love that it's that old style of production that they had. We don't really see anymore because I think there's something like 53 speaking roles, 20,000 extras, uh, 70 Whoa. sets, 900 men and women who worked on the crew. Um, which is it's crazy. That's like wow. you don't make movies like that anymore no. for obvious reasons. To be fair, you don't make movies like this anymore. But still, that scale of production—it's kind of sad that that doesn't really exist anymore. All right, then. Anything else you want to discuss? Anything we haven't discussed already? Anything I did like Sting cracking open. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. I, again, it's a PG thirteen movie where Sting ends up with a knife through his jaw, sticking out yeah, through his tongue. Crazy. I kind of love that. <laughs> And he just kind of breaks like he's a, like, <laughs> like, you know, like a chicken or something being yeah. like cracked, cracked open. Yeah. Cracked. 
And, and again, it's one of those weird things where the adaptation doesn't really work because you're like, and why? Why Sting? Why is this culminating in a knife fight with Sting? Where has this movie been built up in the kind of like in momentum where like the culmination of this well, giant worm riding thing? Well, he kept on seeing him in in his nightmares. <laughs> I mean, it it is it is built up, and the yeah, uh, and it, that that also adds to the importance of 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 Chani, um, kind of as a character, even though because she gets to be referenced in that really one line. Do very much. Well, it, yeah, she's it's, it's kind of like she gets to be very enigmatic. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. She's a mystery, yeah. and not just because we don't have any space yeah. to develop her. Um, <laughs> exactly. All right, then. I think that about wraps it up, then. So, what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something. So, to give. Or to pug something. Or, to, yeah, or if, if, they, if, if they will. Um, to battle. Or if they want a heart, heart plug. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, to give Charlene and Joe a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Um. Um, I'm, I might give a few musical recommendations, um, whether people will enjoy them or not. But the the, the line kind of if if you walk without rhythm, you won't attract a worm. People might be familiar with that from from the Fatboy Slim uh, sample, but it's for, for, from uh, Bootsy Collins. I'd recommend Bootsy Collins, like his his stuff with James Brown, but also kind of um, uh, Parliament Funkadelic to check that out if 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 you were spotify not not in particular like i did i think the thing i enjoyed about it was just kind of trawling through it and finding these really weird sort of uh, where 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 you kind of want to be watching it with a video but you have to imagine it where they're creating these sort of uh, spaceships and kind of um um so and 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 another thing that I was kind of reminded of the 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 the, the because there's a flower boy in it, I thought of Tyler the Creator, and the, the the it's 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 not it's not a recommendation that kind of well I may, maybe listeners of this mightn't kind of be familiar with it, but I like the the 2020 uh, Grammy Award winning um, album for uh, rap, which is a kind of um, I guess Tyler the Creator maturing a lot because. Uh, and and that's easy to do, I suppose, for Tyler the Creator because a lot of the kind of old or stuff with uh, with Odd Future was very juvenile and gone are it's sort of homophobic slurs, and instead you have a a, a queer um, love story, which 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 and 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 while it's not perfect, it's um, it's something. Um, it's 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 an enjoyable. Album. I'd say it maybe takes a, a a listen where you have to kind of um, not do anything, um, and and, and or maybe a few or maybe a few listens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I I enjoyed it. I don't know if our listeners will or not, but um, yeah, check it out if you want. And and Bootsy Collins and Parliament Funkadelic. And Charlene, what would you recommend? Um. Well. I guess since cinemas are reopening, I'm just going to like tell you to go see loads of things in the cinema. But um, I really enjoyed Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor, uh, which got released on VOD, um, but it will will get a chance in the cinemas. I don't think anyone thought it would, um, but I would recommend seeing that on a big screen if you can. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, uh, extraordinary to pass a, a phrase like Cronenbergian down from one generation to another generation so smoothly. And I, I don't think that Brandon Cronenberg is, is without identity or that he is 
the same as his father. I think it's quite different, but um, just doing similar things, but I think really, really well. So I really enjoyed that. I think that'd be a really good uh, big screen experience. Um, there is also a re-release of David Cronenberg's Crash in 4K, which I will make sure hits a big screen in Ireland. Um, the other thing that I really recommend that uh, I'm not sure when people are listening to this, but... Uh, Just before Christmas, for... a week before Christmas. Okay, so uh, the week after Christmas will be Freaky with uh, Vince Vaughn, body swap with a teenage girl. He's a serial killer. She's a teenage girl. They swap bodies. It is tremendous fun. And actually just, I just think when, I get really excited when something is a kind of stupid concept and just is is told really simply and really well. And I think it's a really good film and great crack. And we all deserve that in cinemas. So there, that's my... They're my kind of recommendations for the for the next little while. And then we will have Dune in 2021, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we should mention that the Lighthouse is reopening, will have reopened um, the couple of Fridays before this as well. So yeah. just at... Uh, 4th of December, yeah. yeah. Um, and I also have some wonderful Christmas cards in the post as well for me as well. Ah. Yeah. Um, and Joe, what would you recommend? Um, yeah, I just want to say, Charlene, I'm really happy for you that the Lighthouse is uh, open again. Uh, thank you. I just, I love <laughs> so the lighthouse. Uh, fabulous cinema. And when you're not going to the lighthouse or the IFI, the two cinemas in Dublin, um, we have been belatedly getting into Mozart in the Jungle um, on, on Amazon. Oh, I, yeah. Have you seen it? I have never seen it, and I love Gail Garcia Bernal so much, and I've, I've, I keep meaning to watch it, and I keep forgetting to. Oh, so thank you. <laughs> I just love it. It's really fun. It's comedy drama set in the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, and Gail Garcia Bernal is like this wonderkind new uh, conductor, and Malcolm McDowell is like the establishment one who's been kind of shunted out, and there's locking of horns of those two actors, both given it socks, and it's really beautifully made on top of being quite fun um so it's it's shot like around new york and tribeca and manhattan and uh, having not visited anywhere in so long it's lovely mm-hmm. just to be a, a visual virtual tourist of that place and of course the music is sensational as well um it's lovely and expensive show and it's witty every episode is like 25 minutes um, oh, <laughs> yeah. I love that. Now, now, wow, you've now, yeah, now you've sold it. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it's just a real treat. It's really fun. And Paul White's directs some of it. He of American Pie mm-hmm. and About a Boy. And then some familiar faces uh, turn up in cameos as well. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a real treat. I really like it. Amazon Prime. Uh, most likely. And because I'm a big, massive, nerdy fanboy, I'm going to recommend a whole host of Dune stuff. Um, I really enjoyed the first four books in the series. I think the last two are of questionable quality, and I think the spin-offs you should stay away from as if your life depended on them, the ones written by Herbert Son and by Kevin J. Anderson. So I really like the original trilogy, which is Dune. Dune Messiah, which is one of those great, you didn't understand my book, so I'm going to spell out all the themes for you as bluntly as possible so you get what I'm talking about sequels. Uh, quite like The Dark Knight Rises. Um, And then you also have things like, say, Children of Dune, which is I'm going to do Dune again, but with the volume turned way up on the themes that I think you didn't get the first time. And then God Emperor of Dune, which is fantastic because it's basically, I want to write a philosophy book, but nobody will publish it. So I'm going to stick a giant sandworm in it. And sure, that'll work, right? People like sandworms, people like philosophy. Let's just go with it. Um, And I I, I have a huge, huge soft spot for it. Um, In terms of kind of productions, um, 
the Dune miniseries on sci-fi is not great. Um, it's very boring, very generic. It goes through page by page the book. But the sequel, Children of Dune, which with no disrespect to David Lynch or Denis Villeneuve or the like, history of Dune in cinema, I suspect is the only adaptation in live action you will ever see of any other Dune novel. Sorry, not to, not to, not to preempt the box office potential of Denis Villeneuve's Dune, but just looking at the film's track record and the director's track record. It's on sci-fi. It's actually quite inventive and quite colourful for the budget it's working under. And it has Stephen Burkhoff shouting, And I say unto you, send men to summon worms! With all the kind of like class and weight <laughs> that Stephen Burkhoff can summon. It's beautiful. Um, and I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, Jodorowsky's Dune, the documentary, wholeheartedly recommend that. And then, uh, yeah, that's, that's, oh, and finally, if you have seen Dune, um, there are a couple of, don't watch the extended cut, don't watch the TV cut, the TV cut is terrible, but there are a couple of fan edits online that are worth seeking out if you want to get a sense of what Lynch's three-hour cut might have looked like. Again, Lynch has disowned it, as we talked about, it's very similar to David Fincher in Alien 3, where you will never see a director's cut of it. But you will see people trying to stitch together what might represent Lynch's cut. And again, we talked about this earlier, but one of the tensions in Dune fandom is between the David Lynch fans and the Dune fans, each of which think that the other is ruining their jazz. <laughs> so you, you have like the extended cut of David Lynch's Dune by the Dune fans. I think it's called Spice, Di Spice Diver and it's the alternate edition. And it just takes out all the Lynch stuff. So it strips out all the voiceover, for example. It takes out the music. It adds title cards. It adds subtitles to explain all the stuff that Lynch refused to put in. That's not good. Don't watch that one. Watch Michael Warren's The Complete Saga, which adds back in all of the cra crazy sort of David Lynch stuff that's missing or kind of got stripped out. So there's more Alia in there. There's more Sting talking about how much he hates Paul in there, which is glorious. Like, I, again, I thought we needed a lot more of that. Yeah, like, like, I talked about like... Yeah, because he's not a because he's not a girl, I guess. He, <laughs> he, 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 he had kind of thought that he was going to get this kind of the, the uh, Altrady's daughter. Yeah. And, it, um, and instead and he got, had like, been got building it up. And yeah. said, so got Kyle McLaughlin. But yeah, no, it really does. It works remarkably well. You get a sense of the movie that might have been. So if you can find that online, it's well worth your time. Um, all right, so that about wraps it up. Um, thank you very much. So, Charlene and Joe, where can we find you online? Uh, I'm on Twitter. The Joe. Whoa. <laughs> oh, yeah. Joey, your microphone went mental. You went yeah, you're, proper you're like, like a Bene Gesserit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you're like. Wow, you still it's kind of like very like you can find me on Twitter and I'm like I'm immediately subscribing to you on Twitter. Um, to leave, leave that yeah, in. Sorry. Yeah. You can't don't talk to us in that voice, you witch. <laughs> it's still <laughs> Oh my god. Wow. He's very full on exorcist. Yeah. Okay, once more, let's try again. You will do it my time. <laughs> <laughs> wow okay you can find joe online on twitter at the joe griffin uh we'll include that link in the show notes um i'm not just saying that because joe compelled me to say it using his voice that benny jester um, charlene where can we find you online uh on twitter at charlene Lydon. um and if you want to check out the lighthouse you can check out at lighthouse d7 or i also have a podcast called cinema book club where we talk about books and films um at Cinema Book Club. 
I think. Yeah. <laughs> you've gone you've gone remote actually. I really, really appreciate that. Like in the age of kind of like you're you're now a podcast, so everybody can listen worldwide. Yeah, they don't have to be so in the lighthouse. <laughs> <laughs> we'll include that in, links to that in the show notes as well you can find us online on Stitcher and SoundCloud uh, on iTunes wherever good podcasts are not sold we're on Twitter at at the 250 um, we'll be back next week for our Christmas special we'll be releasing a day early and releasing on Christmas to mark the release of Mank um, on Netflix and also because it's kind of a Christmassy movie in that it maybe spoiler involves a snow globe and perhaps even a sled <laughs> of some description we'll be talking about the wonderful Citizen Kane with the great Niall Murphy we're really be looking forward to that take it easy guys bye bye everyone thanks so much thank you thank you so much cheers